Jack, Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell, an underground insurgent cell seeking to topple the United States of America with the power of God and anime. Osama Bin Laden, maybe you've heard of him, but have you ever heard from him? Not personally, of course. Since his death at the hands of SEAL Team 6 in 2011, he's been much less responsive to requests for comment outside of seance sessions. So we have a problem. For someone with such name recognition, Osama's thoughts are little read in the West. Edited by Bruce Lawrence and translated by James Howarth, today's book, Messages to the World, The Statements of Osama Bin Laden, published in 2005, solves this problem, or at least makes Osama's statements easier to come across. In it are 24 public statements made by Osama bin Laden, outlining his worldview, his grievances, and his reasons for waging jihad on the West, particularly on the United States of America. Born in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, in 1957, Osama was one of 53 full and half-siblings of Muhammad bin Awad bin Laden, a Yemeni businessman and multi-billionaire. Osama turned his back on the family business, instead opting to fight with the Mujahideen against the Soviets in Afghanistan in the 70s and 80s. He led an itinerant existence, expelled from Saudi Arabia in 1991, and moving to Sudan as a result, pursuing extremist Islamist activities there. Under pressure from the American and Saudi governments, the Sudanese government in turn pressured Osama to leave Sudan, and he obliged, flying to Afghanistan in 1996. Meanwhile, Osama founded al-Qaeda and continued to fund terrorist activities, culminating, at least in terms of media exposure, in the September 11 attacks on the United States of America. Having both grown up in a war on terror world, Levi and I wanted to find out more about the man who changed the world in such a way. We wanted to hear from him, and not from the cavalcade of counter-terrorism experts or Islamic extremists who presumed to speak for him. And, in messages to the world, the statements of Osama bin Laden, we got just that. Enjoy. I'm sure it's difficult to... Oh, excuse me. Um, yeah, it's difficult to translate these sorts of See, things. See, don't you just change the letters sure. around? It's just the, Arabic's just yeah. the same as English. It's just but a different you like, script. You, you replace a C with a K. It's exactly the same, just different different symbols. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's otherwise exactly the same. Yeah, it's actually really more of just a, a written difference. If you listen to Arabic closely, except for like a slight accent, it's essentially English. Yeah, it's, it's like Queensland English. <laughs> I can probably understand more Arabic than I can Queenslander. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, whoa, all right. So we do, we do speak Arabic then. In, in which case, we probably and should really, read all of this in the original. Who is more of a threat to humanity? Hardcore Islamicism, nuclear Islamicism, or the state of Queensland? <laughs> or nuclear Queensland. Queensland goes <laughs> rogue, Queensland. acquires nukes and secedes, and declares war on the rest of Australia. <laughs> Nucle- Queensland can absolutely not be allowed to have nuclear weapons. Just imagine that. Nuclear Queensland. Can you imagine how nervous Indonesia would get if on its doorstep is a nuclear-armed Queensland? (laughs) Seceding from the rest of Australia. (laughs) The People's Republic of Queensland. Yeah. No, that'd be good. (laughs) Maybe if our current (laughs) trajectories don't work out so well, we can both become... Underground operatives agitating for Queensland to become nuclear separatists. Yeah, 
<laughs> become Queensland centra- uh, separatists. That'd be so yeah, funny. I've been to Queensland like Queensland. Don't even live there three times, three or four <laughs> I times. Like I, I know it well enough, I think, to start to start writing propaganda <laughs> materials in support of Queensland's secession. I've only been to. I know I've been to Townsville. Townsville is beautiful. See, it's very beautiful up there. It's crazy, crazy part of Australia. <laughs> no crocs in the in the ocean and stuff. <laughs> Fucking irukandji jellyfish yeah. stuff when it wants to kill you up there. I just don't like the tropics so much, actually. Maybe that'll be part of the um, the revolutionary doctrine to make Queensland temperate. I think that's a reasonable demand to yeah, make. I think Canberra. that's a good thing. Could we control climate change well enough to make Queensland temperate? Well, maybe, but maybe, maybe this is the wedge issue. This is Tasmania. You, you make this demand sort of, of the Australian federal government. You say to Canberra that unless you you make Queensland temperate and you stop making Queensland tropical, then we will wage a violent camp, violent revolutionary campaign, and assassinate all mem- all federal MPs and their families, unless they they either stop Queensland from being tropical. Or they let Queensland secede with nuclear weapons, and that then, sounds like the most reasonable political doctrine I've ever heard. We could, we could, <laughs> the, like the grand reveal of this political document could be on the podcast, <laughs> which would be pretty good. That'd be a pretty good story arc. We start for, rallying Queenslanders around separatism. Yeah, <laughs> separatism. Uh, yeah, I uh, just have been uh, getting into the network state. Which uh, might be a good book for this, oh, the uh, biology this podcast, one? actually, by Biology Srinivasan. Yeah, um, yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. We'd need to pick the version but he makes too, these good he keeps points. updating it. Yeah, I, don't know, I guess like whichever's the most recent. Yeah. fucking who cares? <laughs> um, but yeah, we could just rally a whole bunch of people from around. They don't even have to be Queenslanders, but in principle, if we just you know use Biology's network state idea, we can just get a whole bunch of people who just want Queensland to if succeed. You're a Queenslander in your heart. <laughs> if you're a spiritual Queenslander. If you wear board shorts and thongs everywhere all the time, then you can join. Yeah, if you've got a troopy. <laughs> if your taste buds are specifically wide that you enjoy the taste of 4X for, for, for and Bundaberg gold, rum, <laughs> then you're allowed to join the Nuclear Queensland Collective. If you fucking froth schoolies, then. <laughs> if you're 35 Even years the- old and still go to the Gold Coast <laughs> and still go every to December schoolies. for schoolies. <laughs> They call them toolies, the old people who go to schoolies, <laughs> which I find pretty questionable if you're like 30, oh, that, that, 30 questionable. 40, it's fucking disgusting. What are you talking a, about? You're a bit of a fuckwit. <laughs> it's just gross. <laughs> Fuck yeah, get to party with all the 17-year-olds other... getting trashed after high school finished. Oh, it was so gross. I went up there um, to visit our friend who's uh, locuming at the Queensland, like the Gold Coast Hospital. And it just happened to be one of the weekends that Schoolies is on. And it was fucking trash. Schoolies <laughs> it's, is it's disgusting. Just trash. I, was, I, I went to Schoolies when I was 18. And I thought it was Did disgusting you? when I was 18. No, I didn't go to Schoolies when I was 18. <laughs> Me and my friends just went to the beach for like a week um, down in New South Wales. We didn't we didn't go to the Queensland Schoolies. No, I went <laughs> I'm really glad we didn't. Schoolies. It's not as disgusting as Queensland. Oh, you are it's pretty gross. I think it's, it's still got a pretty bad reputation, though. Oh, I can confirm. <laughs> 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 I'm I'm glad that social media and posting pictures of yourself on the internet wasn't quite 
as widespread as it is now. It was widespread, but it didn't have quite the cultural penetration that it has in 2022. What sort of cancel-worthy shit would be coming out about you, Jack? I suppose well, you're no, doing this nothing podcast. Nothing that I will this, 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 publish on the internet. <laughs> this podcast, look, if this podcast doesn't get us cancelled <laughs> in the future, <laughs> I'd be really surprised. It's probably more of an indication that we'd failed in our uh, goal of becoming obscure internet personalities famous for reading insane books. Yeah, it's... Uh... I think our obscurity rather than our content is what's protecting us from cancellation. <laughs> that's, that's our shield. Is that, that, is that really shield of no one knowing <laughs> It's who just we that are. the uh, so the uh, societal immune system has not realised that there's a threat yet. <laughs> it has not activated the uh, the cancel culture thought police. It's all right, yet. even though we haven't. Said but what are they going to do? What are they going to do? Like kick us off Twitter or something? Well, firstly, they can't because now uh, Senor Musk is uh, at the helm. Checkmate. And we secondly, barely even use our Twitter account. And we don't barely. <laughs> and then also, even if we did start using these sorts of things, like look at what we say. <laughs> you can't kill an account that's already dead. <laughs> you. What good, as uh, any radical Islamist uh, would know, like you can't kill a man who is willing to die. You can't. You don't have anything to threaten a man with who's already willing to die. That's right. I will martyr myself for this podcast and for my dream of a nuclear armed <laughs> Queensland. And we expect, we expect nothing less from our acolytes. <laughs> we need people to keep on joining our Discord. We need to start radicalizing the people in the Discord. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's. I mean, the the first part is to lure people in by making them think that it's not a violent revolutionary movement for a nuclear armed Queensland. It's only once they're invested personally that you you hit them with. Oh, you want to bomb a Seven <laughs> Eleven? There must be some sort of like a. Uh tactic that cults use to just sort of increase uh i i imagine it'd be something along along the lines of like asking increasingly uh like making demands or requests that the people do things um and each little step along the way is like slightly more buy-in the person needs until you get to the point where you're asking them to do like you know crazy shit yeah exactly well i recently asked people in the discord for pictures of their cats then next, I'll probably ask for pictures of their feet. Yeah, pictures of their dicks. Yeah. And All then right, eventually yeah. it's going to be, feet. can you send me a picture of yourself, like, I don't know, planting a bomb underneath parliament? <laughs> <laughs> Which parliament? We don't really care. Oh, just, Preferably just, just Australia. Them. But... It can be a state one, can be federal. <laughs> but any parliament. <laughs> it doesn't have to be in Australia. Start a new even. country, create a parliament, and then plant a bomb under that parliament. <laughs> you can just imagine the, new, the, the, the headlines. It's a Danish parliament bombed by Queensland separatist demanding nuclear weapons for Queensland. <laughs> really, really piling the pressure on Anthony Albanese. Member, member of, of, what would they call us? An alt-right podcast, a radical podcast. <laughs> it's pretty hard to pick a political orientation of our podcast. We're definitely extreme. It's just unclear in which direction. <laughs> We're extreme we need to, in yeah, all that's directions. That's why I think we need, to ba- we need to balance out all the white nationalism with some some of those uh, the uh, the brothers of Islam stuff. Yeah, the yeah, I reckon the um, the nation of Islam would so be na- a really good episode because they've got some absolutely wild beliefs. And then and then they can't claim that we're picking on white people. 
I'd really like they, though, by they I mean for the, the mainstream media for an, for an, a nation <laughs> of Islam episode. I'd really like to have someone on the show who is a Muslim, and we can play a, a game like a fun game that everyone likes called Haram or not Haram. Like which parts of the nation of Islam's beliefs are just <laughs> flat out un-Islamic and not allowed according to real Islam. <laughs> We need, we need to find uh, someone who listens to the show who's also a Muslim who can tell us which parts of the nation of Islam are just completely haram. Do you think there's any Muslims listening to the show? I wonder if there's any Muslims listening to the show. If there are Muslims listening, let us know in the Discord because that actually would be really helpful for a nation of Islam episode for someone who knows what the fuck they're talking about when it comes to Islam to tell us what's going on. I mean, granted, we're doing an episode right now about Islamic extremism and that sort of knowledge would have also have come in handy, but whatever. Seems as though the majority of our traffic is coming from the US, which is a real shame because they're imperialist pigs and uh, should really be condemned. Uh, Do we have any Arabic countries? I rank countries based on how many of their citizens listen to our podcast, and so I would have to say... The US is is my favorite country in the world at the moment. So let me see. Is so who's listening? Who's listening in the Middle East actually? Because a lot of this episode, and we will eventually start talking about Islamic extremism rather than Queensland extremism. Which countries in the Middle East are listening to us? Because that'll determine which my favorite country, which okay. which country in the Middle East so is my our favorite. F- our highest ranking, let's see, uh, Muslim Muslim country is Turkey. Egypt five downloads. Saudi Arabia, 21. So already we can empirically say that Saudi Arabia is ranked above Egypt. Iraq, zero. Syria, zero. Israel, 39. So Israel is currently my favorite country in the Middle East based on the number of of downloads. Iran, one download. So I prefer Iran to Iraq because they've listened to us. Oh, Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia has, has 0.16%. Jordan, 21 seven downloads. downloads. So we can safely say we're not Bloody big hell. in the Middle East. But 30, okay, so with, with, with 39 downloads of our podcast, Israel but we're not nothing. is currently my favorite country in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia. But Palestine, zero. Saudi Arabia well, is 21. I don't believe so Palestine, zero. The Saudis, if, if anyone in Saudi Arabia is listening and you want your country to become my favorite country in the Middle East, that's a title that, that ambassadors from, from basically every country in the world will bandy about together. It's, you know, which of our countries does Jack prefer? It's, it's highly prestigious. Quite. If you want me... To, to announce, to officially announce on an episode that Saudi Arabia is my favourite country in the Middle East, then you better get listening. You're not, you're not far off. Saudi believe. Arabia, 21 downloads. Israel, 39. So you're, you're in striking distance. One person can make all the difference. If you just listen to all our episodes a few times, you could scream out ahead of Israel and, and Saudi Arabia will be my favourite. Do it, do it for your country. Hey, that's pretty impressive. Saudi Arabia is beating Russia. <laughs> Come on. Russia. Do you reckon Putin's got it out for us? India. But I, well, I know Indians, Putin listens to uh, We've us. got 111 downloads from India. Good on him. Only 11 from India. Well, I guess in proportion. What in about Pakistan? What about a zero in Pakistan? So in the India-Pakistan conflict, 
India has 111 downloads and Pakistan has zero. So I like I just support so India in that. Yeah, totally what, support India. What are the big uh, big Muslim countries in Southeast Asia? Philippines is is it Muslim country? Uh, Indonesia's. I think Muslim Philippines is mostly Roman Muslim. Catholic, isn't it? Indonesia only yeah, I twelve. Think you're right about that. Australia eight hundred and thirty. Yeah, is so Malaysia? No, Malaysia's not a not a Muslim. Oh no, Malaysia is a Muslim country. Yeah, isn't Malaysia's Muslim it? majority. I know. Where in the Islamic world are we biggest? Because that will also determine my favourite Muslim country. 12, 11. <laughs> Saudi Arabia, actually. I'm pretty sure it's Saudi Arabia. Saudi, okay, so Saudi, sure Saudi Arabia is my favourite Muslim country, but my favourite. Oh, no, Turkey. Middle Turkey, Turkey 80 downloads. No, Turkey is, uh, is the biggest. Oh, is Turkey even bigger? 80 downloads. Where's. Okay, yeah, how many 80 is Turkey? Downloads. Oh, 80 Turkey. I mean, compared <laughs> to the US, that's not much, but. Yeah, in oh, the, five thousand downloads in the Islamic world. I just bring back the the Ottoman Caliphate is all I'm saying. That's it's. I've always <laughs> I've always held this belief. I've held this belief for at least fifteen seconds, and I believe in it very strongly. It's just it, it, Turkey's my favorite Islamic country. <laughs> I wonder why people in the United States would do. probably because we speak the same whatever. language as them, or you know, we speak a crude yeah. approximation of English. And they can understand us. They can understand our hoots and howls. Although I guess Australia is like more in terms of in proportion to population. So Yeah, well, the Australian yeah. population is a little bit smaller than the US population. Maybe the United Kingdom is actually punching above its weight in terms of like weighted by population. I reckon Sweden is punching way above its weight. Sweden's still... Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yes. There are, there are Swedes just like Swedes goofing out on this weird there podcast. are Australians, except their first language is not English. I mean, yeah, when I went to Stockholm, I felt like they spoke English better than they speak in Melbourne, but still... Like they had- and it's uh, less than half the population yeah. as well. That's awesome. Fucking shout out on to Sweden. Sweden. <laughs> so Sweet- Sweden is also Muslim one of my favorite country countries in the Sweden. world. My favorite country in the Middle East. No, well, at least my favorite. Sweden, <laughs> Sweden is your favorite country in the Middle East. <laughs> and my favorite majority Muslim country. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How about some Islamic extremism? Yeah, speaking of uh, Islamic extremism, boy, have we got a show for you tonight, folks. We have got the king, one of the OGs of Islamic extremism. <laughs> Your man, OBL. Your boy, Your boy OBL. Uh, yeah, how much did you know about Osama before uh, reading this reading this book? OBL, OBL1 Kenobi, Osama bin <laughs> Kenobi. <laughs> Osama bin Kenobi. <laughs> it's going to be so hard not to make really bad 9-11 jokes this episode. I, I just, if I make it through this episode without making one, I'll actually be quite proud of myself. <laughs> in one episode, we will torpedo our numbers in America when they just don't want to listen to us anymore from, from our Osama comments. So I remember... Um, yes. So we we as as we are we are millennials and we're no longer the the youngest generation. We're the eldest statesmen. We're no longer cool. We're of on of on the, the perennially way online to become basically boomers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I I just I sit on my front fondly. lawn with a sh- with a shotgun, screaming at anyone under the age of fifty to get off my lawn. Scream at them to get off their <laughs> phones and live folks. a real life. In my day. <laughs> 
the real world. In the, the black and white toned world of the early 90s when I was born. I remember when Technicolor TV was invented. I remember oh, electricity coming in. But that's just because we live in Australia. Everything comes late to Australia. <laughs> when I moved to Europe, I was just amazed. You know, how they, have, they have these things here. I think they're getting released next year in Australia called shoes. Holy shit. Fucking wild. You put Holy them on your feet, shit. right? And you don't touch the ground. I, uh, what? Yeah, no, I that think they're, it's releasing in Australia uh, n- next year or the year after. I don't know if um, they'll be allowed in Australia. Yeah, things do come out late in Australia. Well, as we know, Australia doesn't even exist. So we can yeah, well, I'm a paid actor. We about, <laughs> about no one's Australia. seen my. F- oh, actually, no, they have seen our faces on YouTube, but those are AI generated faces, and we're yeah. actors. Deep fakes, deep yeah. fakes. Uh, I'm just really good at putting on accents. Yeah, and when I say putting on accents, I mean I mean the one accent that I always speak with. <laughs> I'm such a deep cover agent slash actor that I truly think that my name is Jack and I'm from Australia and it's causing intense psychological (laughs) trauma. I can't sleep anymore because I always have visions of my past life before I was psychologically conditioned to play the part of an Australian. It's like, like one of, what are you, uh, one of those sleeper agents? Yeah, exactly. And I'll just, I'll hear a tone over the radio or something and just flick into Terminator mode and kill everyone around me. Anyway, what were we talking? Oh, we were talking about Osama bin Laden. So I remember nine eleven. I was, yeah, I would have been like nine or ten. Do you remember exactly where you were when you found out about nine? Yeah, I remember walking downstairs and seeing my mum watching it on TV and not real. And I remember her and dad being really distressed. And I remember not mm. really getting it initially until they told me what happened. One thing I definitely yeah. do remember was because I was, I was born in the US and spent the first few years of my life there. And at that stage of my life, I still identified as, if not totally American, then quite American. I had an American accent for quite a while. I, I was really scared that Osama bin Laden would find me because I was American. And so I was wanting mum and dad to like hide my passport and stuff like that. I was like, well, what if he finds out that Jack in Melbourne... He's, he's, he's American. He's Top target of Osama bin Laden, Jack, little Jack, eight, eight <laughs> yeah, year old exactly. Jack in Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, so that's I do I do remember it happening, and then I was probably I was too young to really appreciate the significance of moving into Iraq and Afghanistan because Australia has is part of the the ANZUS Treaty with the United States and New Zealand, so we Australia goes into America's wars in the hope that if Australia ever gets into trouble, America will will come to our rescue. Yeah, we'll see about that. We'll see. It's, it's why Queensland needs a lot of a big, beautiful nukes. That's why we need our own nukes. <laughs> Australia. We've, we've discussed over dinner several times, half-jokingly and half-not, that we should form the Australian nu- nuke party. I just honestly don't trust that America would actually come to our aid if some shit started popping off with China. Yeah, I'd be pretty nervous. Fortunately, though, it's like Canberra is roughly as far away from Beijing as Wall Good thing that we've so. got uh, ScoMo to shirt front the shit out of Xi Jinping. No, oh, that was Tony Abbott. ScoMo oh, was too. Yeah, was a beta, beta pussboy <laughs> soy drinker. Not like big bobber We just Tony need Tony Abbott. Abbott back. Really, then, don't we? Oh, King Tony. <laughs> 
I'd say I, I frequently disagree with boxing. Tony Abbott politically, but as a person, I really enjoy him. <laughs> he's just—he's a never-ending quote machine. Wear a shirt front, Vladimir Putin. <laughs> and I do think one of the greatest political slogans ever was "Stop the boats, stop the waste." This government is a bad government. And, and that is. Anyway, we're making jokes that most of our audience won't understand. But, <laughs> yeah, anyway, uh, Tony Abbott should be made dictator of Australia. Queensland should secede, should secede and be given nuclear weapons. And we were talking about Osama bin Laden before we got sidetracked again. <laughs> what, what, were your, what were your experiences of Osama before this? Mm, good question. So, how, uh, how steeped in the Osama-verse were you? I uh, I was very deep. In fact, I've already been to Syria three or four times. Um, oh, nice! Once just to ISIS? have a look around. Twice to, twice to. Yeah, I was para ISIS. I was like not fully on board with them. I did want to kill some infidels though. Mm, mm, so I just yeah you know, yeah just went over. You're one of those. Did ISIS a couple of skirmishes. Because ISIS got pretty mainstream after a, bit a while. Bit of a blow in. You know yeah. the mainstream. I was looking for the next. Media like, got hold of them. Uh, hipsters who are constantly looking for the next band coming up. Yeah, it's about finding that next Islamic extremist group who's who's up and coming. They're still in touch with their fans. They're still putting out really good music. I mean, good good jihad. And <laughs> good, yeah, you, you, uh, you want to be on the ground floor with those. Tickets to their concerts aren't as expensive before they get big. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's what we want. Yeah, so I was... Uh, I remember being in a... The lounge room at home in Sydney, my uh, obviously parents' place when I was seven, eight. And it was only a couple of days after my birthday. So I'm born in September. And uh, yeah, it was on the telly and we were worried because one of mum's friends was uh, in New York at the time. So obviously mm. worried for her. Um, and yeah, just it being a big deal. Though I don't know if like a seven or eight year old can really comprehend those sorts of things. Yeah, my one of my uh, one of my siblings is uh, is Muslim. Might actually talk to her about it at some point. Oh, it's not really big. It's not really a not really a big thing to be honest. <laughs> I do have sympathy for it though. I uh, but I don't know why. For some reason, I uh, get the uh, religious sensation out of other aspects of life, but I don't necessarily attribute it to a doctrine of any particular... You know, for example, I recently watched uh, the 1991 uh, uh, Christmas lectures. So every year the British Royal Society puts on uh, these Christmas lectures. I don't know if they still do it, but I'm pretty sure they do. They were started by uh, Faraday, was it? Or um, someone like that, like 170 years ago. And they've been doing it ever since. And... Uh, there's these great ones from 91 with Dawkins and he, uh, he's explaining at a high level sort of neo-Darwinism, essentially. You know, replicators and sort of game theory of it and had all these interesting animals and stuff. And just thinking about the sheer ancientness of the universe and how like the billions of years life has been evolving and the deep mysteries are still like, we still really don't understand how like information can cause physical, you know, inanimate physical 
atoms to like configure themselves into living organisms and all this sort of stuff like <clears throat> i find i get essentially what i think of as like some sort of a religious uh sensation out of those sorts of things or cosmology or whatever but i just don't attribute uh anything i suppose like supernatural to it or whatever and i certainly do not take dawkins as like or anybody else for that matter as like a source of uh authority on how to live one's life or anything like that you don't have posters of him on your wall above your katana collection an anime <laughs> every night i go i've got a a big face of dawkins like on my on my ceiling <laughs> gigantic face of dawkins looking over my bed face of richard dawkins oh so when i go to sleep at night i just look up at dawkins <laughs> i pray to all dawkins. pixelated from being resized you went to office works with like a tiny 300 by 300 pixel image of his face and like yeah mate can you blow this up to make it like a 12 meter poster for me it's actually, it's not even, it's not just Dawkins. It's actually a, uh, <clears throat> a re, uh, an artist re-rendering of Mount Rushmore with Dawkins, Hitchens, Harris. And uh, <laughs> I don't really like, uh, Sam Harris, I don't really Dan like Dan. Dan Dennis very much. So I replace him with uh, David Deutsch. But other than that, it's the four horsemen. <laughs> <laughs> I just have four faces of Osama bin Laden as my Mount Rushmore. <laughs> just Osama, four times the Osama. <laughs> just one so but you know what the interesting thing is isn't uh i would can only assume that uh it depends on which part of islam but i assume that he probably wouldn't want himself depicted pictographically i that would probably be idolatrous form. yeah yeah i think it so, would definitely be idolatrous but you know what osama i still pray to you every night and you can't stop me from doing it yeah take that obl so <laughs> take take that OBL. I'll dedicate my life to worshiping you, and it will be idolatrous. And there's nothing you can do idolatry. about it. <laughs> take, <laughs> take his name. Like I uh, I interpreted all your writings as a call to convert to Assamism. To Assamism, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's the revenge we'll take. <laughs> By dedicating our lives to Assama. What I found interesting about him was his, uh, amongst the many interesting things about the dude, is his family background is pretty crazy. Yeah, it's wild. His father like, was worth like $5 billion or something when he died from uh, yeah, his a father, construction company, if that's correct. Yeah, his, brother, his, his father, I think, was from Yemen and born very poor and founded a construction company in Saudi Arabia. And started getting those sweet, sweet government contracts and became really wealthy and had like a shitload wealthy. of children. I forget how many siblings Osama or Ozzy to his friends, Ozzy bin Lozzy, <laughs> how many siblings Ozzy had, but he was he had a lot of them. 55 and his mom, children to 20 different women. <laughs> it's what a shark. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fertile man Just Pumping out babies That is one fertile dude <laughs> He uh yeah But Osama's 54 children 20 or more <laughs> Wasn't yeah. one of the favoured wives So <laughs> he kicked her to the curb As all Sigma males must And I think she went back to Yemen I think Osama spent a, a, quite a bit of time in Yemen And always felt a real affinity for the place 
Yeah, Sama was well educated. He'd seen the West up close. He went to, I think he went to Oxford for a few months yeah. on exchange or some shit like that and was apparently repulsed by, by the women in England at um, their loose morals. He was disgusted and when he just went MGTOW and, and not totally MGTOW, but there I are... Loved, I loved it. Back in the day when fitness YouTubers started going MGTOW, it's fucking hilarious. <laughs> if Osama, do you reckon if Osama were a little bit younger, if he were our age or younger, or like Gen Z, Osama bin Laden, if instead of becoming an Islamic extremist, he would have just become a fitness YouTuber and started making videos about like five crazy ways to increase your bench press and then like videos about edging sperm retention and ignoring women. It turns out and there's actually like a, a, honestly, a, an archive where would that have been that. better or worse than 9 11? It would have been worse. It actually would have been Do we need another fitness YouTuber in the world? Would it have been better if Osama just stayed a radical Islamist? He would have caused more damage if he'd become a fitness YouTuber. Yeah, I think if he, if Osama bin Laden became Andrew Tate or an, an, another Andrew Tate, there's a good Muslim think, man taking down the West. Andrew Tate's converted to Islam. Maybe there'll be some sort of convergent evolution between fitness, <laughs> fitness YouTubers slash alpha male internet personalities and Islamic extremists. Maybe Andrew Tate's just going to get more and more extreme, and next thing you know, he's going to be posting videos of him from Tora Bora. Talking about destroying the West. <laughs> Andrew Tate becomes the next Osama bin Laden. <laughs> the ta- the and jihad. He uh, he's got the rhetoric for it. He's <laughs> a little bit more. You know, he might be not be all about the defensive war. He might be uh on the offensive with that one. Andrew Tate might be a bit more aggressive than Osama. Yeah, maybe. Andrew Tate probably could bring a fresh spin. To, to extremist Islam. Turns out he's just I'd, running a get-rich-quick scheme through Islam. Just, uh, well, he'd, be good a, he'd be a great fundraiser. I'll give, an that, affiliation I'll give him scam. that. Have you heard of those affiliation scams? Where you just what get in, like, real tight to a community, like, say, joining a church or whatever, and they just scam the people, and you're kind of, like, abusing their, uh, I suppose, their bonds through faith. Mm, mm. That might be what Tate's running. Might be. I'm, I'm not going to lever any accusations. It, he's, he's a fine, he's a fine upstanding off the, young person. the Muslim community. Andrew <laughs> Tate starts leeching off the Ummah. <laughs> he's identified the Ummah as his next mark. Good fucking luck. I mean, that's... I, I wouldn't fuck with it. But look, if he's... Man's if that's his plan... Gigantic... Dangling balls. <laughs> Perform an affiliation scam on the Saudi royal family. <laughs> They'll probably just Khashoggi him. He'll find himself chopped up into pieces and stuffed into a suitcase. <laughs> the nearest Saudi embassy. I mean, not that I'm implicating my, my personal friend, Mohammed bin Salman, in that. He asked me not to, personally, when we, when we talked last night on the phone. <laughs> so should we go anyway. through some of the things that we learned about yeah i'm so oh uh, so <laughs> we're 49 minutes in so on the book readers dear dear listeners and readers um the way that we're going to structure this Wait, episode should we introduce the book that we read because i don't think we've introduced what we actually read for this episode. we have read the book 
Messages to the World, The Statements of Osama Bin Laden, edited and introduced by Bruce Lawrence and uh, translated by James Howarth. Howarth? Howarth. <laughs> Howarth. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Howarth. One of those. Um, published in 2005, I believe. So Osama Bin Laden uh, died in 2011. So it's... Um, he, but he was born in the 70s. So was he born in a... Or was he... Actually, no, he was born... He must have been born earlier than that. What the fuck, Levi? Come on. He went to university in the 70s, so he must have been born in the late 50s, hey? Oh, shit. He's probably a similar age to my dad. Well, not a similar age because he's dead, but would yeah, have been a similar age. 57. 57. So it's definitely his later life stuff, but uh, it's maybe there could have been things that he wrote closer to his death. Um, yeah, so all those people who talk about how you can only make a difference when you're young... Look at Osama. Yeah, he didn't peak until he just, he he just was got like, bigger and bigger. He just kept he was forty. I was going to say he yeah. kept blowing up, and then thought maybe I, I wouldn't say, it, but I said it anyway. <laughs> should have, should have. Forty-four. So he's forty-four Osama, when he Osama um, just kept getting bigger. It's never too late to change. He really, the world. Uh, I'd say he was kind of a middling sort of C-list terrorist celebrity, but he really uh, exploded onto the scene in two thousand one. Ah. Ah, 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 ah. It is interesting with Osama. So a really formative moment in his life US. was traveling to Afghanistan to fight <laughs> against the Soviets there. So the Soviets, when did they invade Afghanistan? Sometime in the 70s. So late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. And they were there for a really long time. I think they were there for almost yeah, a decade. Yeah, fucking stuff up. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was a disaster. It, more or less the same thing happened as when the United States and, and its allies went into Afghanistan, how they just got bogged down in a long, grinding, asymmetrical war. And with the Soviets, it was... The, the Mujahideen were at least one of the, the Islamic fighting forces fighting against them in a guerrilla campaign. And Osama bin Laden travelled from Saudi Arabia to Afghanistan to fight in that when he was quite young. And he credits it as a very formative experience. And it's really interesting looking at the different accounts of what he did there. So if you listen, listen to Osama's account of his time there, he was instrumental in driving out the Soviets. So he, he borderline claims credit for the collapse of the Soviet Union, which is questionable, I will say, charitably. But if you listen to other sources... People say that he did bring in money because he had access to quite a bit of money from his family's wealth. But in terms of organisation and fighting, he was never that important. So what actually happened there, I don't know. And the, the waters are very muddy, so it's hard to say exactly how important he was. Most likely, he was... He was not as useless as his detractors make him out to be, and he was not as pivotal as he makes himself out to be. But the experience made a huge impact on him. He, uh, he basically, so the war started in 79, and he was at university in 78 in, uh, in uh, Riyadh, I think. I think he was in Riyadh. Um, and, then, uh, and then he joined the war in like 1980, like as soon as he finished. University he went to the war, mm, <clears throat> and he was very strongly influenced by some like pretty hardcore sort of um clerics and Islamic intellectuals 
who I I suppose we would regard them as probably radicals. I don't know if they are regarded as radicals by other people in the Islamic world in the 1980s. But we we should add that neither of us know what the fuck we're talking about when it comes to Islam. So to people who know about Islam, it names like Ibn Taymiyyah, who is one of Osama bin Laden's favorite scholars. Uh, and I, I think Ibn Taymiyyah went, was quite influential on Wahhabism, but I'm not positive. Like those, those names will probably mean a lot to, to Muslims, particularly ones who are quite interested in their faith. But to me, it didn't mean a great deal. Abdullah Azam, Muhammad Qutb. I don't know how I say these words. These are my apologies for fucking everything up. I'm going to You're fuck right. up a lot of the pronunciation of a lot of things on this episode. <laughs> Just going yeah, to go maybe ahead even and more apologize than usual, in We're going to really butcher yeah. some names. Muhammad Qutb. It's Q-U-T-B. I don't know how to pronounce a word like that. I'm just going to say Qutb. Um, yeah. So who else? Uh, what are some other names that I can fuck up? Um, I've always wondered about how to pronounce Al-Qaeda properly. Is it Al-Qaeda? Al-Qaeda? I don't know. Sheikh I, don't, I think saying it with as broad an American accent as possible is what <laughs> Al-Qaeda Al operatives like. Al-Qaeda. 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 <laughs> Who else? Yeah, I think it's just going to fuck up a whole bunch of words and stuff. My apologies in advance. I, uh, I'm i a filthy fucking infidel Westerner. Uh, and I repent nothing. has been sullied. <laughs> yeah, so long story short, a uh, kid from a very interesting background. But I believe he was actually uh, successful in his own right to some degree as a business person, no? Or did he just... Uh, he just inherit just so I, I I feel like I read in here somewhere that he actually after the war he went and did some legit business and did all right for himself. That's partially how he like was able to finance stuff later in his life. Yeah, I heard the the problem is that his family's finances are quite opaque, and then there's uh, Osama bin Laden is the subject of a huge propaganda war, obviously by. Western powers sides, led by hey. the United States against him to try to discredit him and make him look terrible. And then by Osama himself and his supporters to try to make him look very competent. So it's, it's hard to say what's true and what isn't, whether he was a, a savvy businessman who also, who while inheriting money, also made money through his own. But the thing, the other uh, issue is that his brother actually went, I think, either, his brother either took over his father's business when he died or just started his own business. He's, he, he's some, he's got one, at least one of his other brothers were like really fucking like loaded in set, like actually continued. Yeah, he's got a, a few uh, of them. Yeah, so who knows how the fuck he got his money really. Oh, here we go. So here's a quote, a footnote from the chapter from Somalia to Afghanistan. The Saudi Bin Laden group, SBG, is run, run by one of Bin Laden's brothers, Bakr, B-A-K-R, I don't know, I don't know Bakar. how you pronounce that. Bakr. Bakr. Who is the chairman. Other top jobs in the Can you say it in are, the most uh, Disney Arabic way that you can? Like, Musafa. <laughs> can you just, just, be a, just be a Western pig, Jack? Come on. You know you want to. <laughs> I'll just pronounce it the Czech way because to me there are two languages. There's English, which is the normal language, and Czech, which is foreign. So Bakr, who is <laughs> who is the chairman? 
The other top jobs in the company are also held by brothers. By the mid-1990s, the estimated worth of the Bin Laden group of companies was $5 billion. SBG employed 37,000 people in 1999. Construction projects undertaken by SBG include the construction of a new suburb of Cairo, a Hyatt Hotel in Amman, Jordan, a mosque in Kuala Lumpur, and a $150 million base for more than 4,000 US servicemen in Saudi Arabia. How its other adventures include distribution family. of products, including Snapple drinks. It is licensed by Disney to produce <laughs> Arabic books based on its animated features, and it continues to maintain and renovate the holy mosques of Mecca and Medina, expanding their capacity to a million worshippers each. Okay, that last point is... Fuck, that's a shitload of money. ...is big. Yeah, like, they were like... Culturally very significant. Tight. Tight with yeah, the Yeah, so the Bin Laden family, family is that. huge... Wealthy and powerful. Osama is its its best known member, which I'm sure other members of the Bin Laden family are really happy about. It's a thanks, mate. Thanks yeah, for like keeping the family. We've toiled for 50, 50 to sixty years from you know Yemen immigrants to becoming this uh, powerful wealthy family, and fucking one of us just goes a wall and starts blowing shit up. So every family has. Some members who are black, black sheep. sheep, let's say. You know, like people kindly. who go and start podcasts about obscure literature and weird ideas. Yeah, but starting <laughs> podcasts about obscure literature and masterminding 9 11 are <laughs> just different <laughs> orders of magnitude on the black sheep scale. I would say that we're doing a better job at converting in- infidels to Islam than uh, Osama bin Laden. So, yeah, to. Um, <laughs> well, to, to, to restoring the primacy of Turkey in the Islamic world, given that Turkey is my favourite Muslim-majority country. <laughs> Bring back the Ottomans is, is all I'm saying. <laughs> we need a caliphate. Except for, except for in Israel, because that's my favourite country in the Middle East. <laughs> this, this is the, the jack view of geopolitics. Is entirely which is the only, on the, the, the only objective way to <laughs> view world affairs, I should add. So what were we? What next? One thing about Osama that becomes very clear very early on in reading about in reading his writings is his religiosity. So I remember hearing quite a bit about Osama bin Laden that he had all of these ulterior motives for why he was waging war on doubtful. So on groups within the Middle East whom he felt weren't sufficiently Islamic, but also on the West. And these motives were uh, money, power, things like that. But something that becomes very apparent straight away from reading him and is a consistent theme is his religiosity. And I'll take his word for it. I... My impression from all of this is that he was extremely religious and his religion was a, pri- a prime, if not the primary motivator in basically everything he did. He had extremely consistent messaging. He was, yes. He had very good message discipline, which makes for quite a boring read because it was 400 pages of him just saying the same stuff. Yeah, not, not particularly interesting. Yeah, he's. Uh, well, I guess he'd regard it as a as a good thing. I was going to say he didn't really change his views throughout his life. Like the Osama you got early on was the Osama you got just before SEAL Team Six blew him away. 
I, w- I would say that there's even a book, part of the book where he says like sticking to your principles is just like one of the core things. It's, that's what he did. Well, he talks about how he quotes a few Islamic scholars saying that innovation is a bad thing. Probably wouldn't like this podcast very much. <laughs> no, he probably wouldn't put, like go out on a limb there and assume that he wouldn't like it very much, Jack. I think he's a big fan. He like not would be. I think he is a big fan. He's he's staring <laughs> from, down from at us heaven. from heaven. He's surrounded by his seventy. He's only got seventy. And he's, seventy of his seventy two. Torturing them by making them to arrive, listen Jack. to our episodes on repeat. He just pulls one of his favourite versions over. He's like, hey, baby, you want to listen to that episode on Juan Posadas again? And she's like, fuck no, Osama, please stop. I've heard it 60 times. You're, you're killing like, me. I'm is this hell. heaven or is this hell? I'm being made to well, listen to Well, it's heaven for Osama Jack because he gets, he gets to have sex with 72 virgins daily and listen to Book Club from Hell. But for all of the virgins that he subjects to Book Club from Hell on a continuous basis... In a place where there is no time, there is no need for sleep, there is only a continuous present accompanied by our two voices forever. And they're just he's just hanging out for the next episode, like sending me messages in my dreams, like, oh, Jack, when's the next episode dropping? What did you just record? And in my dreams to dream Osama, I have to say, calm down, it's all right. It's coming out soon. <laughs> We're recording an episode on you, actually. And he, like, oh anyway, he I, won't go, I won't go too deeply into my, my spiritual connection with Osama. What do you reckon of uh, Osama in, uh, in the sincerity front? I think he was very sincere in his hatred of the West and his desire to pursue jihad. And I think he was sincerely very religious. Yeah, he seems incredibly sincere, living in a to in the, a cave somewhere in northern Afghanistan, like fighting his religious war. Yeah, to the point where he doesn't seem able actually to understand viewpoints that are not religious. How he yeah. he repeatedly calls the U.S. or Western forces in general, but specifically U.S. troops, as he calls them crusaders. Yeah, and he seems to think that. They are they're motivated in large part by their Christianity, which motivates them to destroy Islam. Yeah, it's it, he really he really only sees the world through through religion. Uh, it's it's uh it's almost uh it's like his mind is caught by some sort of yeah like virus that doesn't allow him to see any other motivation behind things. Yeah, he certainly. It it is no revelation for me to say that Osama bin Laden was an extremist. <laughs> he he has an extremely blinkered view of the world. I would say most almost all the time he he regards the clash between the West and he says between the West and the Ummah as the the Ummah, if we haven't explained it already, is the global community of Muslims. He does. He identifies the Ummah with his fight, which is part of his propaganda method. And I'd like to talk about how he operates as a propagandist later. But most of the time, he he talks about the West's involvement in the Middle East as a crusade. Every now and then, and I think this is probably more for propaganda reasons than his sincere belief. He'll talk about how 
the West is purely motivated by money and have no God, which does contradict many of his other statements about how they're only motivated by either their Christian hatred of Muslims or by the fact that they are manipulated by Jews who hate Muslims for religious reasons. But for the most part, he only views things religiously. He's even got this, um, he's got this quote where he's talking about how everything can be understood in the context of Islam. And in this case, international relations, it's from, from the text from Somalia to Afghanistan from March 1997, when he's being asked basically about how, how he would govern a country because he talks so much about how terrible the leaders of countries are and how they need to change. And he says, We are an Ummah and have a long history. With the grace of God, we are now in the 15th century of this great religion whose complete and comprehensive methodology has clarified the dealing between one individual and another, the duties of the believer towards God and the relationship between the Muslim country and other countries in times of peace and war. If we look back at our history, we will find there were many types of dealings between the Muslim nation and other nations in peacetime and wartime, including treaties and matters to do with commerce. So, it is not a new thing that we need to create. Rather, it already exists. In this case, the thing that already exists is a foreign policy for the state that Osama bin Laden would hypothetically be leading, or what he would like that state to do were he not to be leading it. So, Everything for him can be understood within the context of Islam. Yeah, he managed not to say anything. Yeah, basically he said, we have all of the answers already and they're so self-evident that I don't need to tell you what they are. He does yeah. this a lot, actually. He's, he's a master of not answering questions. Yeah, they're questions that he doesn't, he doesn't want to answer. And that was one of the things that irritated me about a lot of the book is he'll be asked a question in an interview and... He just gives the same answer, which is America is really bad and Islam is really good. And that's basically the answer to every question, except every now and then when he forgets message discipline and accidentally answers the question. Yeah, it, he, he walks into every interaction that he has with like, this is the thing that I'm going to say and I'm not going to like deviate from that course. So a lot of, unless a question just happened to like fall into his crosshairs in a way that he liked and where he you could see he was like answering the question directly a lot of the other questions he just like dodges or trying and there was only one part of the book where like one of the Al Jazeera reporters like basically (laughs) tried to tried to wrangle him into actually answering his questions yeah 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 I found it I found another quote where he's talking about how you only need to to view things through religion it's from the text Resist the New Rome from January 4th, 2004, where he says, To remove any ambiguity, things have to be called by their true names and described by their religious terms. In his mind, something being described religiously is how you get at truth. That there, there just isn't anything more important than religion in his eyes. And it... Yeah, he's pretty much like I was going to say it goes without saying, but if you haven't read Osama bin Laden, maybe it does go with saying that throughout all of his texts, he's just constantly saying, praise be to God, gee, isn't God great, I really like Muhammad. 
it's it's just continuous. And apparently, they extracted the uh, translators extracted a lot of that stuff out because it was too much. <laughs> but there's still a fair <laughs> bit in there. <laughs> like pray, you know. Uh, there's often these uh, taglines that after you say like Allah, you should say something like peace be upon, upon him or that, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. A lot of that's been extracted for this translation. Yeah. And still it's quite a bit. <laughs> Could you imagine talking yes, like that yes. all the time? Holy fuck. She's <laughs> <laughs> such a, uh, yeah, meandering. I mean, who am I? Those in glass houses, Jack, just me throwing stones at Osama for being a meandering fucking We don't meander at all. <laughs> So one of the uh, most important concepts that I think we should get across uh, earlier in in our conversation, even though we're already like an hour and a half in, uh, is, is that uh, is the concept of the Ummah and uh, any uh, Muslim or Islam Islamic uh, listeners, please correct us if we get this wrong. But the Ummah is like the uh, transcendent community of. Muslims or of Islam itself. Uh, so, uh, say a person in Chechnya and a person in Somalia and a person in Sudan and a person in, I don't know, Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan, they're all a part of the Ummah. So, he is able to interpret basically any conflicts around the entire world that involve a, uh, a Muslim country, even if the the conflict is not expressly religious. He interprets it through the lens of uh, the Ummah being attacked. Yeah, and he he very much identifies himself with the Ummah and any of his desires he just imputes to the entire Ummah. So he, he doesn't do the, the normie peanut brain thing of looking at the Ummah and saying, okay, well, what do most of these people believe? And... I will accommodate myself to those beliefs. No, he he decides what he thinks. He already knows that, and he already knows that that's the right thing. And then he says, okay, well, because I think it and because I am indubitably right, this is what the entire Ummah thinks. By extension, if you don't think this, then you are not part of the Ummah and you're an, an apostate. Yeah, and, it's, uh, and it plays into the other major flaw in this dude's thinking, which... What do I think of it? Well, I'll explain it first. Is he collectivizes everything. So yeah, there's yeah. there's no <clears throat> there's no sense of like, say, uh America being a you know, heterogeneous open democracy with like lots of competing views. He just sees like well, the US president is elected. You guys are a democracy. Therefore, you elected him. Therefore, any attack on any US civilians is warranted because you're a democracy. It's your leader. Like, you have direct accountability for electing your leader. Um, and he also collectivizes, like, the Uma. Like, he identifies with the Uma and uh, purports to speak on, on behalf of, like, 1.25 billion people. Um and yeah, he uh is, With is really strange. Spokesperson about uh, yeah yeah of uh you know one eighth of the the entire planet. So and b- because of that, it like that pervasive collectivization. I really think it is one of the uh most uh, dangerous mind rotting viruses that infects humans is uh various forms of collectivization, whether it's like socialism or communism or various forms of religiosity, but in uh. OBL's case, just this 
really archaic. Do I use the word? Do I use the word? Yeah, fuck it. Primitive. Primitive fucking understanding of the world as collectivizes mm. everybody into these like massive uh, monolithic uh, entities. And it just, is that a rhetorical device he's using? I'm not sure. But uh, it's really like profoundly, I find it boring to read people who collectivize like Osama does. He does, but he also, he collectivizes when it's convenient to what he wants to say. Because mm. back to your point earlier about how point. he was talking about how Americans elected their leaders and their leaders attacked the Ummah and therefore Americans are free game. And we'll, we'll get into his relationship with the US more specifically later on. But he will also, when convenient, talk about how America is a flawed democracy because it's actually controlled by Jews and wealthy people. He, he'll sh- he'll he like really call does out not like Jewish people. But he says, Jewish oh, well, it's, it's an imperfect democracy and Americans don't have any freedom anyway and can't choose their leaders because America's horrible. Yeah. And he says that when it's convenient to attack America on those grounds, but then when it's convenient to justify murdering civilians in, say, 9-11 or other other terrorist attacks, suddenly then Americans have perfect control over which leaders they have and are directly responsible for all of their actions. So he collectivizes, and it's, uh, I agree, a very lazy heuristic technique because that's what it is. Ultimately, it's, it's a way of reducing complexity so that the world is a bit more intelligible, that you look at a very large group of people and say, oh, on the whole, they have these characteristics and I use this as, a, as sort of a shorthand to understand large groups of people without mm. thinking as much. And it can be useful if you're trying to make very, like to think about something very quickly and not that deeply. But in constructing an entire worldview, it's pretty lazy and you start, start missing out a lot of stuff because it's pretty low resolution. But Asama does that. When it's when it's good for propaganda purposes, or when it justifies actions that he wants to do anyway, which also is like a good point, or like sort of jumping off point to talk about him as a propagandist and a uh, and a rhetorician. So <clears throat> this book claims at the beginning that he is a, uh, a he was somewhat respected. For his piousness, on the one hand, and I'm speaking like within certain parts of the Muslim world, um, obviously not all parts, um, <clears throat> but uh, that he was respected not only because of his piety, but because he was also a very good speaker, essentially a speaker and writer. And uh, yeah, people even uh, would refer to him with a, uh, what's that word? Uh, is it sheik? In front, they would often, they would sometimes refer to him as Sheikh Osama yeah, bin Laden. Like sh- yeah, Sheikh bin Laden and things. Yeah. I'd want to spend quite a bit of time on his propaganda techniques because he does this, he spends a lot of time propagandizing for waging a, a religious war against the West. Actually, how about we talk about his idea of jihad and stuff like that first? Because yeah. that's what's motivating his propaganda or what his propaganda is in That's the probably of. one of the. I mean, this entire book was really interesting. I, I even, <laughs> despite my criticism, of it, I did find it incredibly interesting. Yeah, let's talk about jihad. Yeah, well, I, I found the book, I found the 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 very start kind of boring because 
he's he's complaining about about Saudi issues or the relationship between the Saudi royal family and the religious establishment in Saudi Arabia. But at that stage, he's still cautious and is not openly criticising. Once he's got a few bombings and terrorist attacks under his belt, thing he gets more interesting. But then by the book, by the end of the book, I was really bored again because it's really repetitive. Everything he wrote was basically the same, just worded slightly differently. So jihad, and yeah, yeah, just yeah, wage violent jihad, and he he actually he interestingly never out and out says that. I am leading this or I am a leader of anything or something like that. He always talks about we, we in the sense of either Al-Qaeda or the Ummah, but totally identifies his his desires with those of the Ummah. So yeah, anyway, we'll, we'll get to that when we get to the propaganda techniques. But basically what's motivating all of his writings is this idea of waging a defensive jihad. So jihad... As far as I understand, it it means struggle, and it's some sort of struggle to a religious end or to an Islamic end. And in the case of Osama bin Laden, that struggle is violent. It is synonymous with violence. You have to yeah. violently resist Westerners or people whom he regards as apostates. And if if you can't go and fight yourself, like pick up a Kalashnikov and shoot some American soldiers or blow them up, in Saudi Arabia or in Africa or something like that, then you've got to contribute money to the cause or you've got to spread the good word about jihad or something like that. And he very much regards it as a duty for all Muslims. Like, you just, you have to do it. He says, like, there are so many quotes where he's talking about how Muslims have to do it. He's in the invasion of Arabia in 1995, he says, And we remind you of the words of God Almighty. If you do not go out and fight, God will punish you severely and put others in your place, but you cannot harm him in any way. The painful torment, torment of which God warns those who refrain from jihad is that he will give authority to their enemies over them in this world. So he's basically saying if you don't go out and fight, then God's going to punish you by making your enemies defeat you in this world. Which is also interesting from a propaganda perspective. So it somewhat reminds me of how New Age gurus work. So with Don Paris PhD, when he was talking about how the SE5 can earn you lots of money by making your business extremely successful, he does mention that you can fuck it up by not believing strongly enough in the SE5, improving your cash flows. And if your cash flows don't improve, it's because you're screwing it up. And similarly here, what Osama is saying is, is that, yeah, if you believe really strongly in God, who can do everything, and you fight for God, then you're going to win, because of course you will, because God is the greatest. However, if you're currently losing a fight, it's just because you're not trying hard enough. It's your fault. So uh, interesting, the parallels to be drawn between Osama bin Laden and New Age gurus hawking their healing crystals. <laughs> yeah, so the inter- another interesting thing about jihad is that it's not... the Like, war is only one aspect of jihad. There's other parts of jihad which just, like, proselytization and personal piety in one's own 
uh, say like private life, um, that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, he <laughs> obviously exclusively focuses on the warfare aspect of it. But it's important to note that, and uh, again, if I uh, fuck this up, any Muslims out there listening, please feel free to correct us. But uh, there's actually two types of holy war uh, or ways to interpret holy war. One is a defensive way um, call, and there's another word uh, for like an offensive. Um, and my short reading of it uh, is basically that the offensive war can only be declared essentially by like some high sheik, basically like the head of the, yeah, sorry, Caliph. Yeah. So basically like the head of Saudi Arabia, there's like, there's like two people in the world or something that can actually legitimately call for an offensive war in the way that, uh, at least according to what, what I read, which, uh, is probably inaccurate, but from what I could make out, whereas Osama, very clever, he knows enough about his uh, the uh, the different clerical interpretations and uh, issues that are happening uh, within Islam. <clears throat> he only ever calls for jihad, and the he always frames it as defensive, and even attacks on civilian targets such as nine eleven. Uh, although maybe we'll talk about 9 11 a little bit later because it's a bit, there's other aspects to it. But uh, say there was some uh, <clears throat> bombings in Riyadh uh, that I don't know if he took direct response. I don't think he did took re- direct responsibility for it, but there were civilians killed in it. And he's like, well, an eye for an eye, the US has been killing heaps of people in the Umar. Um, so <clears throat> that's still defensive, basically. Because you killed us first, yeah. you did. You did it first, so therefore we can kill your civilians as well, and it's still defensive. And the sorry, one last thing about the jihad stuff. I think the other reason why he went down that route is because then there was an aspect where he could decentralize the responsibility and potentially mobilize people. So potentially in his ideal world, his uh his ideas would have gone out to Muslims and it would have like activated individual or small groups of decentralized distributed uh, Islamic radicals to go and commit, say, civilian suicide bombings and that sort of stuff. Now, that happened a little bit, but uh, I'm sure if Osama had his way, it would have happened a lot more than it actually did. And the way that he got around the basically needing the authority of a caliph to declare war in this fashion was that he framed everything as defensive jihad. Yeah. The defensiveness is almost is also really important because it allows him to justify killing non-combatants. Yeah. And well, non-combatants of who who are not Muslim, interestingly, even when he's asked directly, or not interestingly, I know exactly why he does this. When he's asked directly about Muslim civilians killed during his attacks as collateral damage, he always changes the subject. He just does not have an answer for for those things. So he's quite comfortable justifying killing what he regards as Christian or Jewish civilians or non-combatants in terrorist attacks. But 
his and and he justifies that with his defensive jihad, but he never has an answer for well, especially when you you bomb things in Muslim majority countries, you're going to kill Muslim civilians, and he he never has an answer for that. He always changes the subject to oh look, we killed some Americans. Oh, it was at the cost of like fifty innocent Muslims, but I'm not going to talk about that. Yeah, it's with really- um. There's another aspect of it where his collectivization of people, like, okay, you're in the same country, 300 million Americans. It doesn't mm. matter that it's such a large, diverse population. He, he says that it's all white, it's all a Christian war, and the civilians are, are legitimate targets because they elect their president who sends the military. So it's this low-resolution analysis of the world. Yeah, I've got a good example of a low-resolution analysis of the world because he's, he's on being... It was, um, it's in something called The Example of Vietnam from November 12, 2001, where an interviewer asked Osama bin Laden about the Muslims who died during the 9-11 attacks as well as women, children, non-combatants and things like that. And you can see how he just... He doesn't answer the question when it comes to the question of how Muslims died as well during 9-11, but also how he uses this concept of a defensive war to justify killing civilians. So he says, Islamic law says that Muslims should not stay long in the land of infidels. The targets of September 11 were not women and children. The main targets were the symbol of the United States, their economic and military power. Our prophet Muhammad was against the killing of women and children. When he saw the body of a non-Muslim woman during a war, he asked what the reason for killing her was. If a child is older than 13 and bears arms against Muslims, killing him is permissible. The American people should remember that they pay taxes to their government and that they voted for their president. Their government makes weapons and provides them to Israel, which they use to kill Palestinian Muslims. Given that the American Congress is a committee that represents the people, The fact that it agrees with the actions of the American government proves that America, in its entirety, is responsible for the atrocities that it is committing against Muslims. So there are quite a few things here that really illustrate what Osama bin Laden was going for and a number of the flaws in his reasoning that he is saying that because the 9-11 attackers weren't intentionally killing women and children then the deaths of those women and children are somehow justified if it's accidental. And in that case, then suppose America, say American troops shoot a missile at or drop a bomb on some structure that they think are housing com- is housing combatants and some civilians died. Does that justify that? And you know, in the Osamaverse, I know that no, it doesn't because America is bad, but... It's it's something to consider. Also, it's unclear if he's intentionally misleading people or if he truly doesn't understand Western democracies, that when he claims it because certain people are elected to Congress, these, represents, these representatives perfectly represent the desires of their electorate, including those Americans who do not or can't vote. No, I so, think he's, he's a smart dude. He, he understands. He, he talks about how, okay, well, kids... Kids over 13 who take up arms against Muslims are fair game. What about kids who are over 13 but under 18? So they're not allowed to vote yet, but they're apparently taking up arms because they've voted for 
representatives who authorise strikes on Muslim countries? What about, say, if your local representative voted against interventions in Muslim countries? It's just a very... It's what you were saying before. It's low resolution. It's very much... To me, me it seems like justification saying he wanted to do anyway. And now he's found a reason. He's like, oh, I can kill women and children because despite the fact that our Prophet Muhammad was a great guy and didn't like killing women and children, and he seems to use this as some sort of shield of saying, I too am a good guy because I say I like Muhammad. But at the same time, killing women and children's cool because we're engaged in a defensive jihad. Yeah, and in fact, the, the killing of children is something that he levers, oh, sorry, levers, he, uh, he throws at the US and the West a lot, which, you know, yeah. like, fair enough, you'd be pissed about uh, non-combatants, especially children, being killed. Um, and I think that's fair enough. But, um, again, like, it does not... <clears throat> it's not reciprocated. Like, the children that may have died in an attack like 9-11 in the US is just like, well, this is not even... I, I can't remember a single instance in the book where there was any shadow of, like, thinking that through on his part. No. Well, the guy was a fanatic, definitely. It sounds pretty silly saying that about Osama bin Laden, but it is important to note that he is he was fanatical and I, I'm not sure he would have considered these things that deeply. Another justification in terms of his defensive war that he uses for... Um, like, for... Terrorism. What uh, what was I saying? Yeah, so you brought up that he talks about how the West kills children in the Middle East, therefore it's okay to kill children in the West, or sort of. He says it's okay to kill children in the West, but it's also not okay because Islam says not to, and he doesn't do it, but if he did do it, then it would be all right. So here's a quote from Terror for Terror. In, from October 2001 that I think carries an interesting question about Osama's reasoning for his jihad. So he says, So, not all terrorism is restrained or ill-advised. There is terrorism that is ill-advised and there is terrorism that is a good act. So, in their definition of the word, if a criminal or a thief feels that he is terrorised by the police, do we label terrorists and say they... Do we label the police terrorists and say they terrorised the thief? No. The terrorism of the police towards the criminals is a good act, and the terrorism that is being exercised by the criminals against the true believers is wrong and ill-advised. So America and Israel practice ill-advised terrorism, and we practice good terrorism, because it deters those from killing our children in Palestine and other places. So part of his justification for... Attacks on civilian targets is that it deters attacks on Muslim civilians, or what it, he, he says it deters strikes on the Ummah. But it, it begs the question then if Osama's terrorist acts had not deterred attacks on, you know, in this case, Palestinian children, does that stop them from being legitimate? Because I think a very real case can be made, and I would make the case that. Osama bin Laden's actions actually worsened conflict, military conflict between Western powers and Islamic insurgents or jihadis 
which entails collateral damage. I think as a result of Osama bin Laden's actions, more Muslim civilians have been killed by Western powers than would have been otherwise. In which case does that like, would I wonder whether Osama bin Laden would regard that as a legitimate criticism of his methods? I don't think he would accept any criticism as legitimate. Yeah, yeah, I guess I walked into that one. <laughs> not being, not being, he, not taking the piss. Like he just genuinely does. Like he, there's no space in his head for an alternative to his to his perspective. Yeah, because I would say of of my main man Osama, he was a very very competent organizer, and he, he was definitely capable of leading a group of people and specifying and carrying out aims. He was very, I would say, procedurally capable, but I would not mm, regard him as a particularly deep word. thinker. No. Like, as a very deep thinker at all. He found his thing that he liked and he stuck with it. <laughs> his, his mind just did not change. And um, the only times that his mind apparently changes is when it's convenient for him. So, for example, we will get into this later because I do want to discuss whether 9-11 achieved Osama bin Laden's aims. But in the lead-up to... 9/11, or maybe I should say pre-Iraq war. Osama bin Laden talks about how his terrorist attacks really exist to drive Western countries, but particularly the United States, out of Saudi Arabia because he regarded it as, as a huge tragedy and a, a concerted attack on the Ummah that US troops in particular were stationed in Saudi Arabia following, I think it was following the second Gulf War mm. where they were stationed yep. there, but I don't know the history that well. I, was also, I also wasn't born <laughs> at, at this point. Um, and then from that point, it goes on to, we are attacking Americans and the West, not only to drive them out of Saudi Arabia, but to drive them out of all Muslim lands, which interestingly, in his view, includes Al-Andalus, which most people would call Andalusia in southern Spain. It, it extends from that to Westerners need to cease any attacks on Muslims. So that includes, of course, any presence in the Middle East. He also says that no non-Muslims should be allowed in Muslim lands. I've got a quote I can try and dig up of him saying that. And that 9-11 seems to have initially been conceived as a way of scaring America out of the Middle East to force America to get out of Saudi Arabia in the Middle East to make it stop supporting Israel and things like that. But then once that, it became very obvious that that just didn't work, that in attacking the United States, the United States became more involved in the Middle East. He just suddenly changes and starts going, oh, look, I've been playing 4D chess and I've tempted the great Satan into coming into a long and drawn out war in Iraq and Afghanistan where we can bleed them dry. So this is a very long winded way of me saying that the few times when it seems that he has changed his mind really strike me as post hoc rationalizations of fuck ups. Like he, he really fucked up 
what he was wanting to do with 9-11 and tries to explain away his huge mistake by saying that all along his master plan was to bring the US more deeply into the Middle East and into conflict with the Ummah. So deeply, deeply fucking incorrect. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. It is interesting. It he was living in fucking of, La La Land, man. Like, it's one it thing. It reminded to, me sorry. of what happened with the Japanese and Pearl Harbor, actually. How apparently the, the strategic thinking of Pearl Har- the Pearl Harbor attack was that from the perspective of the Japanese military and the emperor, Americans were a nation of shopkeepers who only cared about money. And if you attacked them and scared them, they'd just crumble because all they cared about were profits and were completely spineless. But as we know, the Americans just went fucking ape shit and ended up nuking Japan. And similarly, I think Osama bin Laden really misread how, you know, it's a country of 300 and almost 340 million people. So there are, I'm making a generalization, but on the whole, Americans, there, there seems to be a great deal of division in times of relative peace because they're quite external people. They tend to complain very loudly and assume that everyone wants to know their opinions on everything, which I regard as quite a nice characteristic. But when attacked, <laughs> Americans tend to fall in line with each other and just go berserk and start levelling countries and Osama bin Laden made the same mistake that Emperor Hirohito did in the lead up to America joining the Second World War in that he made a very flashy attack on Americans and instead of what he expected to happen where the American will would crumble Americans just went crazy and like kicked Saddam Hussein out of power kicked the Taliban out of power in Afghanistan in two months. He just, he totally misread how Americans think. Like, and, and to me, at least, it just says that he actually really did not understand the, per- the group of people he considered his enemy. Yeah, 100%. He, <clears throat> I don't think he understood anything, really. His brain was rot- rotted from his <laughs> from too, fanaticism. From too much Quranic study. Yeah, so there's a couple of things to say in regards to what you just said. Like, f- firstly, what people have got to understand about the US is at least over the last, say, 100, maybe actually a bit more than that, because uh, there was they were involved in some conflicts with like Argentina and stuff before World War Two and World War One. Um, but for a very long time, those motherfuckers have been at war. They have probably been at war more than any other country uh, in like the last hundred years they've like constantly been at war and in addition to that they're also like hyper obsessed with technology so they've just got like this double uh thing going for them where they're extremely wealthy they're extremely like on the cutting edge of technology and their military is i would argue probably the most battle-hardened military other than fucking maybe israel so, yeah, but they've got a much that, larger that, population. That counts for a huge amount because war, like anything else, is a matter of learning, and the like. The landscape of war is always changing with regards to technology and tactics and that sort of stuff. 
and they've been fucking at it just generation after generation they're you know like their senior military leaders have actually had battle conflict uh have, to, have actually had like conflict experience i i even saw this uh and i'm inclined to agree with this analysis at least along this uh parameter um the distinction between china and the us if they were to go to war it's like well china what conflict experience do they they have like small amounts but compared to the us it's just like night and day and whilst uh you know like it's hard to quantify what that's worth uh i think it's probably worth a huge <laughs> like a huge amount of um what's that golf term handicap it's a huge handicap yeah so i mean for whatever it's worth i think my perspective on the us is well it has advantages and disadvantages in that i did live there for a while i go back fairly regularly and have quite a few friends there because i spent a, a, a fair bit of my childhood there but i also can view it as a foreigner because i've spent most of my life in australia but i am pretty nervous that china will make a similar mistake that Japan in 1942 made, that Osama bin Laden in 2001 made, where they regard Americans as a group of people that, because they're extremely open with their, their conflicts within America, like, say, the, the culture war shit, mm. their politics and things are very external. And not only do they tend to publicise them by talking about them on social media and things. They'll make movies and TV shows and mm. stuff like that about them. Not only do they air their dirty laundry, but they make it very entertaining to watch their dirty laundry being aired. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're really good at it. <laughs> but if you don't really have much of an understanding of American culture, you can interpret that as massive, insurmountable internal division. And it does seem to, you know, f as far as people can tell, because the... Chinese Communist Party is very opaque, and especially now post-COVID, mm. that most foreign journalists have been expelled from the country, even more opaque. But I do yeah. worry that there is a growing consensus among the leadership that America is weak and dissolute and doesn't have the will to fight a war. But it really is historically when you push Americans, they just flip the fuck out. Yeah, like they're, in a they're, in a really violent way. They fucking love and their that that makes me worry that the Chinese leadership will miscalculate. The, and the do other thing that they really miscalculate dumb. that these sorts of closest, so like all of those people, I could say like the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, uh, Imperial Japan, the CCP, and Osama bin Laden, because they come from close societies. I'm yeah, using yeah, the that's term exactly closed right. and open in the sense that Popper discusses. Um, they come from closed societies. They don't understand that the peaceful, if heated, um, discourse in the US, especially, but also other Western countries, is evidence of weakness. But it is, in fact, evidence of one of the greatest strengths which is the error correction mechanism of free speech so the question i asked myself is if you had an open society that had where everybody had instantaneous the ability to instantaneously broadcast their point of view to everybody else simultaneously what the hell would you expect 
you wouldn't expect everyone yeah, to just yeah, get, it's gonna get be, along. It's going to look like a shit show. It's going to be a shit show because you have hundreds of millions of people from all different backgrounds arguing about. But, but the flip side of that is that what would you expect from a closed society? You'd see exactly what you see in China, which is a single point of view. And as soon as any alternative points of views are expressed on any of their internet platforms, it's immediately silenced. So unity is evidence of homogeneity. And in this particular case, disunity can in fact be evidence that there's error correction going on. And these people, because my claim or my analysis is that these, these, these leaders from these other countries, because the, the selection mechanism for basically becoming a leader under, so, so in the kind of an analysis of like, what are the characteristics that would be selected for in an organization? Can you kind of infer something about the nature of the people who ascend in those organizations? Well, in the CCP, whilst they are effective at some things, one of the key things that they're selected for is like brutality, <laughs> you know, <laughs> brutality and uh, allegiance to Xi Jinping. And basically that's it. That's like the, those are the, those, maybe there's some others, ask a China ex- expert, but in the US, it's, there's a bunch of different things that they're being selected for, you know, career politicians and stuff. How entertaining they are. How entertaining they are. But man, there's a lot of other things being selected in all, and especially in their military. And I just, I don't think yeah, that other yeah. people from, like, if you're from a closed society, you just don't understand how powerful that mechanism is. Yeah. And I guess we'll discuss, we'll, we'll talk about this more when we get to the, when we get to talking about did 9-11 achieve Osama's, or at least his stated goals, which I'd say no, it didn't. But yeah, that's, it's a really interesting point that he was approaching this from from a perspective that I think really negatively impacted his decision-making because he viewed everything as this, as a religious conflict. And it's because the the US was intervening in the Middle East because they are Christians and because they want to retake the Holy Land. And also he just, yeah, did not understand open societies. And both those things made him make major miscalculations and his arrogance as well he's deeply arrogant so he, he's deeply arrogant. he talks about it earlier in the book because so uh well the high level structure of the book is it's uh his writings or like speeches in chronological order from the uh from the 80s until the early 2000s so earlier in the book corresponds to earlier in his career and life yeah the book was published in 2005 and i think the last of Osama's writings is from 04, I think. Yeah. Um, or at least in, in 2011. But um, what was I saying? Uh, sorry. Zipped out of my head. Oh, yeah, he's incredibly arrogant. arrogant. So he, he also, like, basically, so there's the uh, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in the 80s for 10 years, and he was involved in that. In uh, Jalalabad, I think is that how you pronounce pronounce it? Um, don't ask me. I don't, I don't speak Pashto. <laughs> Anyways, wherever he was fighting, um, <clears throat> they were assisted by who? Uh, the US or the UK? I think the US. The CIA. Yeah, and, uh, the, and the, you know, the CIA provided the Mujahideen with significant training. 
That gave him a bunch of stinger missiles and shit. And, and a bunch of other things. So, you know, obviously the uh, Mujahideen were fighting, but they weren't doing it alone. And he basically, he, he essentially said, in a nutshell, uh, yeah, nah. It was basically just the Mujahideen and really, like, they were kind of just extras on the side. We fucking kicked the goddamn Soviets out. And he did not, like, consider at all just, like, uh, you probably wouldn't have been able to do that if it weren't for the assistance of the West, mate. Yeah. I've got a quote here from A Muslim Bomb in December 1998 where he says, The Americans are lying when they claim they helped us at any point, and we challenge them to present a single shred of evidence to prove it. In fact, they were a burden on us and the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, and there was no agreement between us. And this is interesting from a from a propaganda perspective. So it it does seem that Bin Laden himself was not trained by CIA operatives and American officials deny that they had any involvement with Osama Bin Laden during the, the um, Soviet war in Afghanistan. I would say on both sides there is significant incentive to deny any involvement. I mean... Of course the CIA don't want to fucking admit that they trained Osama bin Laden if that ever happened. And of course Osama doesn't want to accept that the Americans played a significant role in in getting the the Soviet Union out of Afghanistan in that the Americans were the ones who played the major role in weakening the Soviet Union to the point where they just could not continue that prosecuting that war. But like the whole thing about we challenge them to present a single shred of evidence. It's like yeah, there is a there's a lot of evidence that the US were were involved in arming the Mujahideen, that the CIA had significant interests in Afghanistan. Like that's not that's not secret knowledge. Those are declassified documents. It's in the public domain. But it's this it's a rhetorical technique he he frequently employs where he says something very stridently as a challenge like yeah i challenge you to provide us with evidence and because this is not a dialogue format it's just asama writing something to you or sending a a vhs of himself talking to al jazeera it i guess if you have absolutely no interest in looking into it or fact checking him then it might be somewhat compelling and then he flips it into uh, into religiosity, which is uh, or like piety, I should say. He uh, he's like, well, you know, the reason why the Mujahideen were able to kick out the Soviets is because of their uh, they were, you know, essentially blessed by God. You know, they were fighting God's war. So yeah. And then he'll he'll always inevitably selectively quote the Quran. And I really like the book because sometimes he only half quotes things from the Hadith or the Quran. And then the author will say, this is only half the quote. Here's the rest of the quote. <laughs> yeah, which is, and oftentimes the second half of the quote really changes the meaning. Yeah, yeah, From yeah. like, oh yeah, go and kill all of your enemies because they're non-Muslims. To, if you complete the quote, it will have like a very important qualification there, which would make it a less compelling case for going and murdering <laughs> people for not being Muslims. And and slightly related to that is that he uh he's particularly uh not asphyxiated <laughs> fixated on um 
<laughs> no, I don't know if he was into asphyxiation. I can only assume. Although, you know, I wouldn't put it past him. It's pretty I just food. think, broadly he speaking, didn't live in a cave with a anyone who is that interested in the sexual lives of others, as he was, given how, how deeply religious he was, no one who was that interested in the sex lives of others has a normal sex life. He would have been into some weird shit. I guarantee it. He lived no in a cave sexually in northern pious. Afghanistan with a bunch of other dudes. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it gets very lonely in Torabora at night. No, but, uh, anyway, so, so he's he's fixated on a very particular, what some people would regard as radical. Like, um, let's see if I can find uh, like one of the guys, uh, Abdullah Azam. Uh, yeah. Uh, a radical Islamic scholar and preacher of Pal- Palestinian origin. He taught that jihad was a moral obligation of Muslims and the quote-unquote sixth pillar of faith, um, whereas conventionally there are only five such pillars of faith in Islam. Uh, Azam taught in Saudi Arabia from 78 to 84, which is when um, uh, bin Laden was studying, and I believe he actually studied under him. And uh, he moved to Peshawar, where he worked in conjunction with bin Laden, setting up a recruitment center for the MAK. Uh, the Maktad al-Kidabat, which is, uh, I can't remember what it was, but it was, an, it was some sort of military organization. Um, and mm. uh, he, uh, there are some other like particular clerics and sheikhs that Osama was basically like, yeah, these guys, these guys are the OGs. They know what's up. Whereas these other clerics, they've betrayed Islam. And he'll just to sort of tie that back to the jihad thing, for example, he'll be like quoting certain scholars or certain parts to justify the the um, jihad or that it's okay to kill civilians because our civilians were killed first or whatever. Um, but obviously Islam is an extremely large, uh, complex ideological system. There's uh, two, there's only two major sects, right? Sunni and Shiite. Uh, there are uh, there might be other smaller sects as well. Um, and oh, there, there are so many smaller ones. In enormous clerical diversity and all of this sort of stuff. He just just has yeah, but no. They're, they're all wrong. They're all wrong. And in particular, he then starts. And earlier in the book, he's pissed off at the Saudi royal family, and eventually just starts calling them apostates. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> saying like, yeah, the Saudi ro- the the royal family and the clerics that they use to like try to authorize their actions. They're a bunch of apostate traders who have betrayed the Ummah. So it's basically in Assam as well. It's like my way or the fucking highway fellas. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. He really, it was particularly this guy called Ibn Taymiyyah that he, he quotes a lot. That seems to be his favorite of these, these clerics, Ibn Taymiyyah. Like, <laughs> Ibn tie me more like Ibn tie me up, fuck me in the mouth. <laughs> that's, that's what I want Osama to do to me. <laughs> fuck yeah. I don't want to make look. This does not apply to all cave dwelling peoples because I don't want to generalize that. But just with regards to Osama, he looked like a stinky motherfucker. I bet you that cave that they were sitting in smelled like shit. <laughs> what do you think he was so angry all the time? <laughs> It is interesting what you said about secular leaders, though, because he really did not like secular leaders, 
in in the Arab world, in the Middle East more broadly, and in the the Muslim world even more broadly. He he regarded them all as traitors. And when he was younger, he spoke yeah. about them a little bit in in slightly more guarded terms because I think he was just less extreme when he was younger. But as he gets older, his attacks on on local leaders get more and more and more outrageous <laughs> until, as you said, by the his last writings, he's just calling the entire Saudi royal family um, apostates, saying that they're not Muslims, saying that all of the clerics they sponsor are not Muslims and are leading people astray, calling for attacks on them, like violent overthrow of all governments in the Middle East, and just and blaming them for... All sorts of things. So he calls them idols, and he he regarded following those leaders as fundamentally idolatrous. Um, in Resist the New Rome, from January 4, 2004, he says, Therefore the ruler became an idol to be worshipped instead of God. This is the current situation in Saudi Arabia. And as far as I can tell, the process by which rulers came to be worshipped instead of God was because rulers would impose secular legal systems in which certain things that are forbidden by Islam, say usury, drinking alcohol, stuff like that, are legal. And in doing so, the rulers are usurping God. And then if anyone follows those rulers, and by follow those rulers in Islamaland, that means not like planting bombs under their cars or trying to shoot them and things like that. That is what entails following a ruler, not trying to kill them. Then you're effectively worshipping this ruler as an idol instead of God, and that makes you stop being a Muslim, and that makes you fair game to be killed he uses by Osama phrase, and the Al-Qaeda boys. What is it? Uh, yeah, the, the law of men instead of the law of God. So yeah, yeah. Any, any man-made laws is essentially just, okay, what is a... He's basically like... Uh, constitutional originalist <laughs> to map to map to map fundamentalist Islam into the American context. <laughs> he's a, yeah, he's a Scalia of the Quran. He's the Scalia, basically. Imagine Scalia, but Muslim blowing stuff up. That's what he's saying. And instead of the Constitution, it's the Quran. Yeah. So he he only wants pure Sharia and none of this uh, secular crap. I do think his talents were much more as an as an organizer and a propagandist than a thinker because his thinking is full of holes. But he, I, I really think it is a big part of what his um his talent as a propagandist was was just message discipline. He just says the same thing over and over and over again. And he also utilized the early internet really cleverly. Yeah, to he would have been message. posting like decapitation vids on tiktok if he were around today Finding yeah like isis those, um those was filters. actually following in al-qaeda's like footsteps basically al-qaeda like they so isis could run yeah yeah isis really did fucking blow up the internet there before all those live beheadings that's crazy shit man yeah they were pretty plugged into the attention economy 
<laughs> really, they they were big fans of Gary <laughs> V. They fucking viral like Gary content. V. ISIS Gary V. Like next ISIS fucking get together, they're gonna invite Gary V over for it. Gary V. Gary He's gonna be up there with his fucking iPhone yelling about you still don't get it. All the attention is on this phone. (laughs) And ISIS is like, yes, 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 that's right. We've got to move to TikTok. Trending on TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we gotta watch out for Gary V. Did you hear about Liver King? What what did Liver King do? Well, he's on steroids, right? Obviously, like oh yeah, fucking take, of course that guy is. Have a look at him, like two neurons to realize that dude's on fucking steroids. <laughs> yeah, there is no fucking way he. What was he's like? What was this whole thing? It's like oh old. the 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 seven ancestral tenants or whatever the fuck. You do these things like sleeping and getting enough sunlight, and you're just going to become like. 120 kilos of lean mass. Yeah, get fucked. I, I th- he doesn't look very tall either. I, I think he might be shorter than us. He doesn't look very tall. He's like fucking 100 plus kilos of like he's lean so, muscle. so, so jacked. And, and he's like 40. Achievable naturally. And he's... Yeah, achievable naturally. But he wasn't sorry I mean, as about we all know, steroids. Ronnie Coleman was, was natural his well, entire natty, career. So. Natty King. King of the natties. Ronnie Coleman. If you can win the Olympia eight times naturally... Like Ronnie, natural bodybuilder Coleman, then you could you probably might even do be able to win the Tour de France a few times naturally. Yeah. See, I don't have any. Is, it, uh, is a bike too high tech for Liver King? <laughs> I mean, look, test suspension is is obviously natural. It's the only enough, sort of suspension he wants near his body. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, anyways, I was saying, uh, uh, why was I talking about the Liver King? Liver King for jihad. And Liver King for jihad. He's already got a so, beard. That was somehow tangential. He should become. Related. He should become a jihad. He would fit in well in a in a cave in northern Afghanistan in the mountains of northern Afghanistan. He becomes responsible for a spate of like mass casualty <laughs> spear attacks. He just lines up like a group of a, a bunch of ancestral spears and starts throwing them at people. Like Fed Square or something like that. <laughs> At vegans or something. <laughs> <laughs> or internet tough no, guys. He games a- up with Andrew Tate, becomes a Muslim. <laughs> Wages war jihad on the West. I just think there's a crossover potential between fitness YouTubers and extremist Extreme Muslims. Extreme Islamists. Islamists. Um, man, my mouth. Not very well practiced at saying words from another culture. <laughs> um, but I was, the reason why I was talking about him is you really can blow up very quickly on the internet. Like uh, the book club from hell is just blowing up at the moment. Um, like, like we're not doing. Like we're not doing. <laughs> but he he aimed to have like a million viewers in less than a year. And it, he got to a million whatever Instagram followers or something in like six months or something like that. Um so yeah, that that's all I was going to make a point of just how quickly you can blow up on the internet. <laughs> like ISIS. Yeah. ISIS really blew up. They would take off today. I'm kind of surprised that actually no, there hasn't been another big organization that's uh taken off on the internet, like that's really radical. That I've Be heard the of. change you want to see in the world, Levi. <laughs> the, you know why what? You do, why don't you in, become why don't you travel to Syria? Uh was it um Wall Street's bets? They did a pretty good job. That was fucking sick what they did. <laughs> that was so much fun. <laughs> Were you involved in that at all? Oh no, maybe you're not allowed to talk. I don't know. Are you like no, surely everything they did was legal, right? <laughs> yeah, they did legal stuff. Yeah, they didn't do anything illegal. They just fucking wrecked some hedge funds. It's funny. 
Citadel Capital just got absolutely reamed by a bunch of degenerates on r slash Wall Street bets <laughs> buying fucking GameStop shares. So funny. It's so well, not, funny. E- not even the shares because they were buying stuff on Robinhood, weren't they? So they were buying a bunch of GameStop derivatives. Was Robinhood just derivatives? You, so you wait. When I don't you're on understand Robin Hood's actually business model shares? exactly, but I th- it's something like you're not actually That's buying shares; joke. you're buying derivatives of That's those garbage. shares that Robin Hood. Yeah, that Ro- Robin Hood's selling you the derivatives because it's something. That I think there's just more. I don't understand. It's in some way it's easier that they just sell you a derivative, sure, instead of the the shares themselves. But I mean, I say I'm Can saying I buy this with no in, background in, in Al Qaeda. Do you reckon they're selling shares? They should have made tokens. This is like Asana missed out on the blockchain. They would have fucking made so much money. (laughs) Al Qaeda (laughs) NFTs. Al Qaeda's. Yeah, but no, 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 no NFTs, mate. That's idolatrous, mate. Unless it's just. Unless it's just. An NFT doesn't have to be a JPEG. Yeah, or just could have been something else. Yeah. You're not, JPEGs of geometrical not patterns. Do depictions of people or something. Uh, yeah, JPEGs of patterns or just smart contracts. Uh, yes. Oh, hmm, what sort of? What could they do that would be on brand for them? Smart? A G, no, G, defensive jihad smart contract. Yeah, that. you can make a smart contract with God. So it's like <laughs> if you if you go and like I don't know, do a suicide bombing or or something. In the smart contract, so there'll, there'll, there'll have to be some sort of off-chain monitoring, like a chain link. Like you could probably do it through chain link. So chain link with God. If chain link detects that you've blown yourself up, do you reckon uh, Allah is at, at a Woolworths or something like uh, that chain in, link in Carlton? Then, then your family gets a certain amount of money, and you get your seventy-two virgins in the afterlife. I reckon, like Ethereum smart contracts. For jihad would be good, or you could do it on Cardano. I'd, I don't care. Like they can do it on all sorts of chains. They could. Uh, maybe all of the uh, big Ethereum hacks over the last two years, you know, have been actually just siphoning money off to uh, to Al Qaeda. Is Al Qaeda even operational anymore? I haven't heard about them in years. They're so fucking twenty tens, mate. Yeah, I know. They've really fallen off hard. I mean, Actually, they're, they're sort of like tens. They sort of felt. I can't remember hearing about those guys for like since at least like 2012 or something. I know they're like dubstep. They blew up like crazy for a while, and then they just they just fell off. <laughs> it's just it's just how it happens. ISIS came and ate their lunch, and then yeah, ISIS fell off too. Huh. Anyway, Look at that Qatar apparently they've been financed by a Qatari government allegedly. Okay, I'm not going to stand by those claims. I'm not, that's not a that's not a hill I'm willing to die on. <laughs> that's just a little quick glance at Wikipedia. Don't fucking sue me. <laughs> Don't need a lawsuit with the <laughs> Qatari royal us? family. <laughs> the Qatari government. Because <laughs> I've been critical of Al Jazeera on the Discord. <laughs> They have nothing better to do than to sue an obscure podcast. <laughs> They're going to take all like uh, six Satoshi that I have. <laughs> nah, do it. I mean, just imagine the exposure we'd get. I feel sorry for these these people. You know, like I look at uh like at the Al Qaeda website and stuff, and they have a website. 
no, sorry, like Wikipedia or where, where they might have a website. It's probably probably instantly end up on a fucking government Al-Qaeda. watch list. Al They just look like <laughs> they essentially, and I mean, I don't know when are these photos from, 2012, 2097. Like, essentially, uh, okay, so I'm, I'm uh, Australian Aboriginal and some of my experiences growing up were like low-tech experiences. I would say like somewhat intentionally, like spending some time in the bush in like a in like a uh, shack, like a bush shack. And some of these fellas look like that, except then they've got an AK-47. Like remind me of like, okay, living in the bush. And then they've just got like an AK. <laughs> that, that does not look like yeah. a, a good combination. Like, <laughs> surely you'd want to be like, okay, we've got this uh, this rifle that is like fairly technologically advanced. Maybe we should also investigate not living in a shack in the woods. <laughs> so put, put maybe that it's a lifestyle. Our, maybe maybe they just like is this living in a, a shack. lifestyle decision. And like the AK is the technology that they like. <laughs> I think they really like them. They've got a lot of really shitty Russian guns from the from the Cold War. <laughs> I was like, yeah, even recently yeah. I saw some African uh, troops being mobilized and sort of they've got, look, you know, like the AK is, you know, one of those OG guns uh, that's supposed to be like really hardy and stuff. But notwithstanding that, like... Still, if your military is like walking around with AKs or some of these older Russian weapons or whatever, it's just like you're literally like 30 to 40 years behind the game. <laughs> you see shit on YouTube that the Americans have. Yeah, but they're not fighting with the power of God and anime on their side. So, <laughs> like, that's how Osama's going to win. I just don't understand. Like, in what world do people honestly, like, in this day and age, still think that the US is like militarily. Uh, anyways, getting off. Getting off track. <laughs> how about how about I bring us back with a quote? Every Muslim, from the moment they realise the distinction in their hearts, hates Americans, hates Jews, and hates Christians. This is a part of our belief and our religion. And that's from a Muslim bomb in December 1998. I like this quote because it's just classic Osama bin Laden, where he basically <laughs> says, Osama. "Listen, mate." If you d- if you don't hate Jews and Christians, then you're not a real Muslim. <laughs> this is this is an integral part of Islam that you just do not like Jews, and yeah. So so much of his writing is this, where he basically he talks about how good it is to be a Muslim, and then lists all of these stipulations that you have to fulfil to To be a Muslim, and invariably they're things like, yeah, you hate Jews and Christians, and you're going to go kill them as soon as you are able. Yeah, he, it's it's pretty straightforward. I think we could sum up uh, Osama bin Laden's point of view: um, kill Americans and Crusaders, and kick them out of Arab countries, and stop attacking the Ummah. So that's it in a nutshell. In fact, actually, I'd reorder that to, hey, West, stop attacking the Uma. If you don't stop attacking us, I'm going to keep on killing your people. And that's kind of it. Yeah, he does. Everything he, else Every is now and then will change things up. So there was, I'll try to find the, um, where it was. There was a really good section where he actually changed up his approach a little bit to address the West directly. Yeah, so it's this, it's this one called To the Americans from October 2002, which is, 
I think if anyone's going to read anything by Osama bin Laden, read his... I think it was, it's a transcription of a videotape, I think. It's called To the Americans from October 6th, 2002. That one's quite interesting. But it's interesting that he changes his, his plan of attack a little bit for this one. So normally he's addressing other Muslims and basically saying, okay, so... If you want to keep being a Muslim, basically, you've got to do everything that I tell you to do, which is you need to start killing Jews and Christians and Americans. You need to hate them. And that's how you're a real Muslim. But in this one addressed to Americans, he, he picks a few hot-button issues from American politics and then tries to, like, quite insincerely, Use those as reasons for why the why America is terrible and why no one should support it, and why Americans should I don't make their government cave into all of Osama bin Laden's demands. And so, for example, he says, "You are a nation that exploits women like consumer products or advertising tools, calling upon customers to purchase them." You use women to serve passengers, visitors, and strangers to increase your profit margins. You then rant that you support the liberation of women. And I just find it so delicious that Osama bin Laden, a deeply, deeply conservative Muslim man, is complaining that other people are, are hurting women's rights, that, <laughs> that they're, they're not fighting for the, the true cause of women's rights. He also complains about US sexual practices. He says, you are a nation that practices the trade of sex in all its forms, directly and indirectly. I'd also like to say in many US states, prostitution is illegal, but I don't think these legal technicalities are that important to, to my boy Osama. Giant corporations and establishments are established on this under the name of art, entertainment, tourism and freedom, and other deceptive names that you attribute to it. And because of all this, you have been described in history as a nation that spreads the diseases that were unknown to man in the past. Go ahead and boost and boast to the nations of man that you brought them AIDS as a satanic American invention. You hear that, Americans? AIDS is your fault. Cause your all of your fucked up sexual practices, you made you made HIV and gave it to the world as a as a satanic gift. He also he complains about um about the green causes, because Osama always was a big, big fan of the green movement. He was always, always a real conservationist, very env environmentally aware. He only ever used biodegradable AK rounds when he was shooting at people, biodegradable RPGs when he was blowing up Soviet tanks. Every time he killed an enemy soldier, he planted a tree to offset the carbon emissions as a result of that act. Big fan of Tesla. And he says, You have destroyed nature with your industrial waste and gases more than any other nation in history. Despite this, you refuse to sign the Kyoto Agreement so that you can secure the profit of your greedy companies and industries. And is that reading this, I just thought, nah, fucking bullshit, mate. Like, what does this cunt care about the Kyoto Protocol? Like, no fucking way he cares about that. Like, Snowball's chance in hell he gives a shit about greenhouse gas, gas emissions. No, that was just a, a he was trying to mount Actually, every single criticism. That. 
every single moral criticism he could come up with against the US. And again, you know, just to point out the obvious again, his collectivization of the of the US, just like how many people in the US are like massive environmentalists and how large the environmentalist movement is, how influential it is, is uh even back in the early two thousands. Um, you know, like uh Vice President Al Gore, <laughs> like running in the early two thousands. Um yeah. No, it's it's garbage. Can't think very with much. With this though, with the um so I get that you know, to a certain person his his propaganda addressed to a Muslim audience might be more compelling because he he'll do things like he'll quote different clerics and things like that to back him up. And this is something that I've noticed quite a few Muslim writers writing about Muslim subjects do. I'm assuming it's some sort of cultural form where mm. you'll quote like a bunch of different scholars or clerics mm. who are backing up your point. Mm. And so like they're constantly referencing each other. It's always, you know, in yeah, the words like of this this particular yeah, shake. The Jewish community yeah, I mean it's it's sort of like citation with footnotes, mm. except yeah, they'll they'll attribute it to a an Islamic scholar when they're discussing matters of Islamic jurisprudence. Mm. So like uh, Bin Laden will do things like that and he'll talk about issues that are very, very relevant to someone. I don't know, if you're living in Palestine, he brings up the Israelis all the time. They'd be very, very relevant to you and probably much more compelling a result. But when he's talking to the West, it's very obvious that he doesn't understand the culture nearly as well. Because, okay, in this case, his message to the Americans from 2002 when he is bringing up the Kyoto Protocol, seriously, like really, really seriously, who does he think in America is going to be convinced by this? Like truly how many people are going to hear this and go, oh, I, did, I didn't like this Osama guy before, but, you know, he cares about the environment. And okay, you know, let's Again. go, jihad. This, I'm this, go might be, uh, this might be one of the things, uh, pieces of evidence to support our argument that this is just propaganda and that he's just a uh, polem polemist. Polemicist? <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, he's a polemicist and a propagandist, but you still have to question, you're, you're propagandizing to whom? And in this case... Like, what, you're, you're propagandizing to people who stand barefoot on top of some oil pipeline because they don't like it. I, I, I just don't know actually who this is addressed to. I was going to um, say that one interpretation of this particular passage is that whilst it's directed at the US, I think that there's a good, like, an alternative interpretation would be that this is him wanting to appear as a strong man against the US, knowing that this is still going to be consumed mostly by his original target audience anyways. Mm, mm, so yeah, how you true. see sometimes like, you know, Putin arc up or like some Chinese C CCP like official arc up, you know, trying to put on a show and it's like, it's, I don't know, say at like a G20 conference or something or like some whatever, but 
it's like half the reason they do that is so that they can show internally on state media, like, look, we're sticking it to the US. Yeah, that's true. So that's an alternative, uh, you know, like he he probably could have stopped if he just wanted to talk to the US, he probably could have stopped after like, yeah, well, you know, half a million Iraqis died in the war. So, you know, we're still at only 1% of your kill count for um, for 2001. But the way that he lists, he just keeps on listing off basically in, in his point of view, like moral sins, I think is probably more like, it's like, uh, well, the people that you're criticizing don't share those morals, right? So is it really directed at them or is it directing at the people that already listen to him? Yeah, I think that's that's probably the case. Interestingly, too, in that, um, so he doesn't claim responsibility for 9-11 for quite a few years after 9-11. He just says that he really, really likes the 19 people who who carried it out and they're great and they're going to heaven, but he so didn't have jury any involvement in, did he, in it. Did he do it? Did he and Al-Qaeda do it? Is the jury definitely yeah. on that one? And he, he later did or acknowledge that he planned it. Yeah. But it took a while for him to get to that point. Okay, what else does he do in terms of propaganda? He spends a lot of time talking about how cowardly and weak Americans are, which uh, makes of sense. Course. You want to make the enemy <laughs> seem less scary if you're also going to try to incite people I have to, um, to fight against it. A point here, which is uh, kind of about his propaganda, but also kind of about uh, his religious um, view of the world. As uh, long-time listeners m- might remember, I, I've spoken about the uh, distinction between natural laws and normative laws. Natural, not as in like the uh, liberal philosophy of natural laws, but uh, laws of nature, um, <laughs> and uh, and how like there's a distinction between like between the two um or at least it could be argued that there's a distinction between the two and in fact in a lot of uh pre-enlightenment thinking normative laws and laws of nature were conflated such that you could use uh moral moral laws to like or like uh the typical sort of thinking would be um, we've contravened whatever normative laws, so God is punishing us, you know, like, for example, like expulsion from the promised land for 40 years or whatever um, because of something that the tribe of Israel did, that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> so, of course, because he's such an advanced thinker, um, Osama bin Laden does exactly the same thing um, in various ways. I've got one here in particular. There were some attacks, some bombings in Riyadh, um, that killed a bunch, a bunch of people, um, and at the time Saudi Arabia was going through like a bunch of issues, um, like inflation, youth unemployment, and stuff. And uh, he goes on, and at the in this particular essay, which is Declarations of Jihad, he is criticizing the royal family and basically <clears throat> how the Saudi royal family, the Saudi government, was allowing the US to like occupy, um, like station troops in Saudi Arabia. So he says, people are struggling struggling even with the basics of life and everyone talks frankly about economic recession, price inflation, mounting debts, prison overcrowding, 
low-income government employees talk to you about their debts in the tens or hundreds of thousands of reals, whilst complaining that the reals value is declining dramatically. Sound uh, sound familiar in uh, 2022? <laughs> Sounds extremely familiar. <laughs> uh, seems as though sovereigns can't be trusted with the currency, but I don't want to distract us again <laughs> bitcoin bitcoin. <laughs> bitcoin solves this um domestic debts <laughs> owed by the government to its citizens have reached 340 billion reals and are rising daily um due to usurious interest let alone foreign debt people are wondering are we really the biggest source of oil in the world and here's the key here's the clincher they feel that god is bringing this torment upon them because they have not spoken out against the regime's injustice and illegitimate behavior <laughs> he's like putting he's putting words in the mouth of like millions of saudi citizens <laughs> yeah the most prominent aspects of which are its failure to rule in accordance with god's law its depriving of legal rights to its servants its permitting of the american occupiers into saudi arabia and its arresting of righteous scholars inheritors of the prophet's legacy and unjustly throwing them in prison. He's referring specifically to some clerics that he, he really likes being um being imprisoned. Um, yeah. And then he goes on to basically say the regime's like desecrated Islamic law. Um, they've not pretending protecting the land. They've failed in their ability to keep out the American crusaders and so forth. And he's basically saying like all this bad stuff is happening because our leadership are a bunch of apostates <laughs> and are breaking Sharia. Was I think I quoted earlier him saying that if if Muslims don't believe strongly enough and don't fight for their faith, then God punishes them by letting them be dominated by foreigners. And this is exactly in that line that the current secular rulers that Muslim majority states have are terrible and non-Islamic, and that's why things are bad. He has this it's an offhand comment, and I, I took it to be a very, very, very backhanded comment where he talks about how, despite the fact that some former parts of the Muslim world, or parts of the Muslim world that are still parts of the Muslim world, but are currently occupied by Christians, and he brings up Al-Andalus again, that that part of the world is wealthier than Muslim countries, despite the fact that it's so much smaller. And this comes down to governance and government, governance there being better than governance in the Middle East. So at least he sometimes has nice things to say about, about non-Muslim countries, although it's, it is in the context of talking about how the, the un-Islamic rulers of Muslim-majority countries are terrible and horrible and should be violently overthrown. In terms of his, um, his propaganda, there's this other document of his called To the Peoples of Europe from 2004 that's pretty interesting from a propaganda perspective because this document is addressed to people in in Europe as the title might might twig you to although what Levi you said earlier about how it's also probably for a, a more domestic audience I think holds but basically in this document he's telling Europeans that if they continue to support the US then then he will order a bunch of attacks in Europe. However, if they cut all ties with the US and with Israel, then then he won't attack them. And he gives them this ultimatum. Like it's something like, yeah, three months after the publication of this document, 
that's the amount of time that Europeans have to to abide by Osama's demands. Otherwise, he will launch a bunch of attacks. And I'll read some quotes from that, which are interesting to, to consider from a propaganda perspective. So he tries to separate Europe from America and separate European populations from their leaders in saying, as for your leaders and their followers who persistently ignore the real problem, which is the occupation of all Palestine and indulge in lies and deceit about our right to self-defense, they have no self-respect. They show contempt for people's blood and minds through such deceit, but it only means that your blood will continue to be shed. If one looks at the murders that are still going on in our countries and yours, an important truth becomes clear, which is that we are both suffering injustice at the hands of your leaders, who send your sons to our countries, despite their objections, to kill and be killed. So it is the inter- in the interest of both sides to stop those who shed their own people's blood, both on behalf of narrow personal benefits and on behalf of the White House gang. It is interesting for a few reasons. It is hard to take this seriously because Osama bin Laden has in the past condemned US voters as completely complicit in their leaders' actions because they voted for them and therefore it's perfectly acceptable to kill those voters because they are in some way indistinguishable from their leaders I'm not sure why he's described that in European democracies that same principle doesn't hold, but you know, for convenience's sake, it it seems to be different. Yeah, there's it many also ways. is that Sorry. Osama bin Laden seems to consider half of Spain, you know, the southern half of Spain, to rightly belong to Islam, and I expect he'd continue to be hostile whether they withdrew from the Middle East or not, as he continu- as he considers Andalusia to be occupied territory since the Reconquista in 1492. <laughs> there's, a, there's many ways to skin a cat, right? So he... Yeah. It might be that he's... You know, like, people's perspectives change over time somewhat, and he's just not, like, retconning or anything. He's just not even acknowledging it. But some of these texts are, like, very distant from one another. And uh, again, this is a compilation of of writings. I didn't do any further research. Actually, maybe there's something that we should look up quickly. Is like what, how many of uh, like what proportion of his published texts does this represent? Like a significant amount or yeah. just a small amount? Um, but he doesn't strike me as the sort of guy who would apologize and say like, oh yeah, I said this thing before, but uh, you know, I made this mistake and so my opinion's now this other thing. Um, he seems like the sort of guy that's just like, nah, whatever. Uh, just not even going to mention it. Just move on. It's, it's irrelevant. Yeah. To that I would say, in works subsequent to to the people of Europe, he then blames US voters for the for the policies of their governments because they voted for them. Yeah. So in this case, I that is, that's a very generous interpretation, but in this case, I don't think it holds. I think it's I'm just, just Osama throw the throw picking the whatever low hanging right. fruit he can get his hands on. Um, yeah, maybe I shouldn't try to be uh, too generous to look. Nah, I'm just putting I'm the just generosity is always interesting when we really stretch to try to understand what what these people are saying. Okay, one thing that I did want to talk about was uh, whilst we're still here. Uh, we've spoken about jihad as a defensive war. We've just spoken a bit about the Umar, which is really interesting, and him as an orator. I, I'm assuming that his uh, Arabic, his spoken and written Arabic, 
was commensurate with the um, sophistication of the translation. I'm going to assume that the translator did not embellish his writing at all. And if that is in fact the case, then it seems as though he was a really articulate person. And by, you know, judging from what he was able to do in terms of organization and stuff, like really charismatic as well. Mm, yeah, probably. He had a lot of children. So, <laughs> yeah, he, he definitely fucked. Okay, so we've got a bunch of different ones. Which one should we move on to? Um, uh, some of the stuff that's a little bit more, um, a little bit less direct, or did you have anything else to say? Do you want to talk about the culpability of the West? Yeah. Or do you want to go on to did nine eleven achieve Bin Laden's aims, and if his demands were met, would he have ceased his jihad? Okay. Because those are all I'm happy. pretty interesting questions. What should we talk about? Let's talk about the second one first, um, <clears throat> which is uh, did they achieve their aims with 9-11 and arguably other attacks? Well, there's two, there's two ways to approach that I can think of. On the one hand, there is an argument to be made that al-Qaeda as an idea is a somewhat disorganized, intentionally, no, I'm not using that word derogatorily, intentionally disorganized, or maybe what we'd say is uh, is decentralized. And so whilst there is the core component, which is like the stuff that he was operationally involved with, there is also an idea of like inspiring what is essentially uh, independent attacks, but that are still heavily influenced by Al-Qaeda. So there's a decentralized aspect to this yeah. mobilization and inspiration of independent factions to arise and to commence jihad. And that's on point. And with regards to that, maybe you could argue it it spread it spread the ideas a bit. But if it helped get the US and Israel out of the Middle East, fuck no, it didn't help. It absolutely did the opposite. It brought it brought the Leviathan in into his homeland. Yeah, because as to your previous point about did it spread the this idea of violent jihad against the West? Well, it's jihad to what end? Yes. Why why are you waging jihad is probably a more relevant question than are you waging it or not? And yeah, earlier in his works, it's all about. It's jihad to get the West out of the Middle East. It's jihad to get Israel, well, not only out of Palestine, but Israel out of existence. And on both those counts, 9-11 just made it worse. Uh, Do you reckon he ever woke up and looked at himself in the mirror if he had a mirror, which he might not have had, um, I don't know, in like a puddle <laughs> of water or something <laughs> in his cave. Like uh, he looked, selfie, on, selfie on his on, his iPhone. Yeah, he looked at himself in the Flipped mirror. Flipped that camera just, around. Just thought like, beard. what have I done? You know, like sometimes when you look at yourself after you've been, well, you don't drink Jack, but I don't know, partaking in some other substance. And either the morning <laughs> later, the morning after or on the way up, you just look at the, yourself in the mirror and you just go, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done to bags myself? Under your eyes. That was that was a, a really bad idea. Do you think he ever had one of those moments with himself? <laughs> as there's like as like you know like some part of a country that he is supposed to be defending is just being carpet bombed into the ground. 
Yeah, I don't know if he had. I mean, I I don't know Osama. Well, I mean, I do know Osama personally, but personally know Osama. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I, I don't. Yeah, I don't know how self-reflective he was as a person. From his writings, <laughs> he seems profoundly me. unreflective. He was really into <laughs> into the meditation and you know doing a yeah. personal reflective writing, thought journaling, morning, journaling, and stuff. Would see a therapist every Tuesday. <laughs> as a life coach, <laughs> <laughs> he just binge watched Jordan Peterson videos every night. Started making his bed, and now look at him—he's <laughs> mounting global jihad. <laughs> When SEAL Team 6 broke into his his compound in Pakistan in his room, it was just full of, like, cum-stained Jordan Peterson body pillows. <laughs> and, and, and like, uh, David Goggins posters. He's <laughs> really into American self-motivation, North American self-motivational speakers from the 2020s. He got really into, like, distance running and things like that while just listening to compilations of Dave Goggins calling him a and bitch. And then fucking Goggins kicks in his doors and blasts him away. <laughs> Dave Goggins was leading SEAL Team 6. When he like repelled with, him with Jocko his willing and shot right in behind him. In the head. <laughs> Jocko, that's. I assume the entire U.S. military is just Jocko willing. And Osama bin Laden never heard him coming because he had his he had his I I he had his um his AirPods in full blast with Dave Goggins compilations those motivation compilations of like Fuck, Dave Goggins so screaming so about you being a little bitch and things like that with hardstyle blasting in the background. So Osama never heard Dave Goggins coming in for the kill. I fucking love Dave Snapped Goggins. his neck a like a Grassini. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what happened. <laughs> it is precisely what happened. It was Jocko Willink and Dave Goggins. It just busted in. Blow him away. They were not stealthy at all because they were just screaming at each other about the importance of leadership and motivation and waking up at 5 a.m. every day. <laughs> and so they ran the... militant in a 100-kilometre radius heard them coming, but Osama didn't because he was busy doing his kettlebell workout <laughs> while listening to Jordan Peterson talk about patting cats. They, they, they ran the entire way there. Jocko and Dave Goggins <laughs> yeah, ran, ran from the US. From America. <laughs> Under the sea. Under the sea with their shirts off. <laughs> just all the way over to <laughs> Pakistan. <laughs> him down. Didn't even use technology, just intuited where he was. They were like honing pigeons. They live streamed the entire thing while trying to sell you workout supplements. <laughs> Actually, do, do both of them hawk workout no. supplements? That, that might have been slammed. Well, not, not the shit that I've seen. They've got their own books, man. Of everything I've said on this episode, they are that's basically what, I what you want to be. Jack, do you know Jocko Willink and Dave Goggins are basically doing what you, you want to do, which is they have podcasts and like social media and they just sell their books. They probably do other stuff as yeah, well. Yeah, I should have become a Navy SEAL. Being a Navy you, SEAL you seems could, to be the best start thing a workout you can possibly channel. do for your podcasting career. Jack, you could start doing running videos and stuff and talking about fasting. I could become a Navy SEAL. Of, you've got heaps of uh, health related stuff. That you could, you no, could I shell. think I'll just be a Navy SEAL. Oh, shell. <laughs> Hawk. <laughs> Hawk to our fans. It's never too late to start being a Navy SEAL. No, I mean, I, I've, I've listened to your, to your advice and I've chosen to ignore it and chosen to take <laughs> from it that I should become a Navy SEAL. <laughs> good. <laughs> oh, so, Very good. I'm signing up tomorrow. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so our original point was: did did he fuck up? Yes, he fucked up. It backfired really, really hard. It's it, in fact, it might be one of the worst backfires in all of history, up there with uh, Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor. Yeah. 
and and arguably up there with some of the other uh you know like the nazis provoking um yeah, well, i suppose the uk well i don't know there's all sorts of stuff there that i'm probably not qualified to talk about but none <laughs> nonetheless uh <laughs> yeah he fucked up pretty bad it's very interesting but i do think he he really fucked it up and no matter about no no amount of justification after the fact that in fact he was trying to draw America into a protracted campaign in Iraq will really convince me otherwise. That just seems like cope, pure cope. Pure copium. That he actually had just refined copium that he he ended up actually drawing that America Afghani, more deeply into the Middle East. That heavy Afghani pure copium. From the from the field that Osama was just flower. huffing, <laughs> huffing in his cave. That's ancient shit, man. <laughs> it will put you straight in the couch. Yeah. So, what was the other thing that we deferred talking about? <laughs> there were two things that you offered. What was the first one? Not culpability. Um, oh yeah, no culpability. I, yeah, if his de- if his demands were met, do you reckon he would have ceased his jihad? Because he kept saying. You know, as soon as you Early in meet career, my list yes. of demands, I will no longer be fighting this war with you. Early in his career? Oh, I, well, here's an interesting way to think about it. Okay, so the relationship, and this is something that I've only been finding out because of reading this book. And so, again, I'm probably going to fuck this up, and this, the following perspective is probably going to have lots of mistakes in it. I'm just going to hedge the shit out of everything I'm about to say. But... Levi's an imam and everything said about <laughs> Islam is correct. I just I want to I want to put that out there before Levi says whatever he's about to say. The history of a relationship, the relationship between Jewish communities and the Islamic world is not one that's entirely characterized by hostility. In fact, there were Jewish communities living under certain caliphates in like, for example, Spain, if, if I think, yeah, if I remember correctly in Spain, that like, uh, no, have I got it the wrong way around? Uh, no, I'm not going to, I'm going to withdraw that statement. I feel like I've got it the wrong way around. But yes, other Jewish communities living at other part, in other parts of history and in, in the world that have lived, um, you know, in relative peace with, uh, say, like the ruling Islamic regime. And in fact, there's um, parts of the hadith and stuff that I came across that were like, oh yeah, like people of the book, so Christians, Zoroastrians, um, Jews, you know, they're cool. Let them keep their religion as long as they pay taxes, basically. And the first early uh, like conflict was there was a, a conflict between Muhammad and the people of Medina. He'd been kicked out of Medina, if I remember correctly. And I think he was kicked out of Mecca, wasn't he? He was kicked, he was kicked out, out of Mecca, Mecca and fled and to Medina in the Hydra. That's right. And he goes back to Mecca to try to get Mecca. And uh, did, did he reclaim it? Anyways, there was a Jewish yeah, community he there that betrayed him and he had a pact with them. So a lot of the, uh, I would argue from my brief reading, like some of the things that could be cited in early uh, Islamic literature uh about that are like um uh anti-jew uh anti-semitic they're pretty highly specific to the context of like the specific um 
issues that Muhammad was having with like this specific, these specific Jewish communities. And it's not entirely clear to me that you can even justify like generalized anti-Semitism. But notwithstanding that, there's been other instances where Jewish communities have lived um, in relative peace with Islamic communities. And so I think the modern issue is more around like the occupation of Palestine as being viewed as illegitimate and colonial and that sort of stuff. Um, especially because Jerusalem is the third most sacred city after Mecca and Medina in the Islamic world, um, because it's where uh, Muhammad ascended um, into heaven. So, yeah, this is all to say, like, it's fairly complex, but I think early in his life, you could argue that if Israel, if if like, basically, like, they dissolved the state of Israel, and if the US pulled out of, like, Islamic countries... Like, yeah, maybe he would have stopped. Firstly, that was never going to happen. Secondly, later in his life, I think he starts basically, I think, getting more and more anti, like just straight up anti-Semitic later in the book. Um, yeah, oh, and definitely. There are some very spicy quotes. To the point where he's just like, yeah, you just got to kill all the Jews. And like maybe later in his life, he there would have been nothing that, like even if the US withdrew and that sort of stuff, he was like, no, keep on waging war. Like we've got to wipe them out. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's a really good framework to look at it in. That earlier in his life, maybe he would have been satisfied by the quite extreme moves of so the US just totally withdrawing all support for Israel, withdrawing all troops or all Americans from the Middle East, because he quite early on in, the, in his writing says that non-Muslims should not be in Muslim countries. Yeah. But as he goes on, he's got in um in the text to the Americans this list of conditions. Um and these things basically are just a pretext for a war with the West for as long as Osama bin Laden is alive. I'll I quote if you fail to respond to all these conditions, then to prepare to fight with the Ummah, the nation of monotheism which puts complete trust on God and fears none other than him. Also, as an aside, as you can see, he's saying, if you don't do this, you won't be fighting Al-Qaeda. You'll be fighting with the Ummah, with every Muslim. So (laughs) these demands were, one, for Americans to convert to Islam. Two, for Americans to stop their oppression, lies, immorality, and debauchery, something which is so vague that... I can't see Osama bin Laden ever backing down from the West because he'll always be able to say, oh, well, they they lie, so Mm. we have to kill Westerners. Three, he calls on Americans to take an honest stance with themselves to discover that you are a nation without principles or manners and that, to you, values and principles are something which you merely demand from others, not that which you yourself must adhere to. This is a bit of the culpability of the West. So... Mm. I freely admit that the West can be highly hypocritical much of the time. However, in his demands, like, just stop being hypocritical or I will kill you, is, in in the context of would he stop his jihad if the West gave in to his demands, again, this is such a vague demand that I can't see him ever backing down from it. Mm. His fourth demand was stop the support of Israel 
end mm. support of the Indians in Kashmir and the Russians in Chechnya, and cease support for the Manila government against Muslims in the southern Philippines. Five, I quote, We advise you to pack your luggage and get out of our lands. We only desire this for your goodness, guidance and righteousness, so do not force us to send you back as cargo in coffins. I've brought this up a few times, but when he talks about Muslim lands, he, he includes half of Spain in that. So I, again, just don't see him backing down from jihad because he would say, oh, well, the Spanish are occupying Al-Andalus, therefore we can keep bombing the Spanish. And as long as European countries support Spain in not ceding control of, of Andalusia to some ambiguously defined Ummah, then we will continue our jihad. Six, end support for corrupt leaders in Muslim countries. Uh, like, I don't know what that means. Like, no diplomatic relations with any secular leaders in Muslim countries at all. And seven, this is a very, very nice vague one. We also call you to deal with us and interact with us on the basis of mutual interests and benefits rather than the policies of subjugation, theft and occupation and not to continue your policy of supporting the Jews because this will result in more disasters for you. So particularly that first point of interacting with the Ummah on the basis of mutual interests and benefits, again, that is so incredibly vague that I can't see Bin Laden ever not waging violent jihad, mm. even on just the basis of that point. Yeah, I don't, it's, uh, I don't think he would have stopped. No, I don't think he ever would have stopped. Yeah, but that's to be expected. So we could move on to another topic. One of them might be playing the game of uh, trying to look at the world from Osama's perspective. And so I spent a lot of the time thinking about, like, in which ways, like, whether I'm being too generous or whatever, thinking through, like, okay, the criticisms of the US and the West in general from uh, Osama's perspective. And one of the things I can understand is that I think it's pretty, it's probably pretty fair to say that like the death toll on either side would be like much higher for, well, it, it depends what country it is and so forth, but say like Iraqis killed as a consequence of the actions of uh, the US military or like the what he quotes a lot of the economic sanctions that caused a, uh, a famine in Iraq um, <clears throat> imposed by the US, uh, which, you know, probably like famines over the course of the last century probably like accounted for a huge proportion of the deaths like as a direct consequence of um, political actions. So that's... It, see, the, the problem is even trying to be generous and take his point of view on this is that, like, he then justified, he uses, say, like, the number of people killed in Iraq as a, as a justification for his own actions. And he's using one key argument, and it's the only argument that he can use to justify this, is the idea of an eye for an eye. And yeah, he cites Islamic clerical justifications for it but i'm sure like 
any literary tradition. He could he's probably cherry picking the fuck out of it. And not only that, but like a lot of the world doesn't work like that. <laughs> but notwithstanding that criticism, um, yeah, the US has got a lot of blood on its hand on its hands. Yeah, I think his his criticisms that the US and the West more generally are, are quite interventionist. So in the the nineteenth century, under the neocons, and yeah, but even before that, so say in the context of Europe, or at least some European countries, and it's not like mm. Czech Republic had extensive overseas colonies. Yeah, but countries like the the United Kingdom, France, Italy, and Libya, but a lot a lot of European nations had empires, and those empires did extend into the Middle East. And yeah. so he brings up the Sykes-Picot Agreement of, mm. of 1916, which was an understanding between the French and British governments, which would define their spheres of influence in the Middle East after the First World War or upon the conclusion of the First World War. And this agreement redrew boundaries mm. within the Middle East that it, it, they created countries that or created boundaries of countries that didn't really reflect the religious and ethnic makeup or didn't create geographically delineated groups of people who felt that they had much in common beyond the fact that they had now been effectively rezoned into a country by the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Mm. And that has led to quite a bit of conflict. So Mm. OBL brings that up in terms of talking about European... Uh, responsibility for misery in the Middle East. And then he talks about US responsibility for misery in the Middle East mm. later on. And I think those, so, so those criticisms are justified. So did European powers and then the US need to intervene in the Middle East? Mm. No, probably not. It depends on what, you, what you're looking at. So in the European context, given that a lot of the European colonial powers were just plundering money from their colonies to bring back home, really as funds to compete with other European nations. Mm. I guess you could say, oh, well, there was a calculus within Europe that if a country didn't do it, they'd be poorer and dominated by their neighbours. From the perspective of Osama, that's not... Like that's not it's kind compelling. of irrelevant if you're the country yeah. being plundered to if support you're the, country the being colonial plundered. empire. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's their problem. Yeah, and, in and the as, case as of the United sorry. Oh yeah, sorry. Go on. Oh well, just as uh, like obviously, I was not myself exposed to the things that happened in Australia, but as like the uh, descendant of that of a community that has been colonized, like. It 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 like <laughs> that that history and stuff like fucks up communities pretty bad. Leaves so like, and it's not just here in Australia. Like it's all over the world, and there's a lot of uh, people with um, you know, like grievances, uh, with history. However, like, how do I put this? I guess I can, what is is what is happening, say, in the last 40 years, colonialism? Like, I could see the argument that the stuff that happened in, after World War I as colonialism 
uh, is the th- stuff that the US has been doing? Is that a form of colonialism? Uh, I'm not sure about that. Maybe it's like a whole different beast. Um, yeah. And then also, in saying this, I will probably, you know, I'll alienate our 24 listeners in Saudi Arabia. But <laughs> so Osama bin Laden talks about the damage of colonialism on the Middle East. But he also conveniently forgets the fact that, okay, for example, Egypt wasn't always Islamic. So for more of its history, Egypt has been a, from at least the perspective of Osama bin Laden, a <laughs> pagan country yeah, yeah. than an Islamic country. A polytheist scum. <laughs> yeah, well, they existed <laughs> for a few polytheism. millennia before Islam. But, uh, but Osama bin Laden doesn't seem to regard the conquest the of, of Egypt by Muslims <laughs> as colonial, even though it was. Like they, yeah, they, they erased the previous, the previous culture and imposed their own. So uh, it, it, it is a bit of people living in glass houses throwing stones. Yes, like I'm, I'm not going to defend European colonialism. I'm not going to defend the, the war in Iraq, which I think was stupid. But at the same time, Osama bin Laden is getting very worked up over things that the culture that he wants to be global is also responsible for perpetrating, which makes it a bit harder to take everything he says yeah, yeah. seriously. I think it, this ties into the broader analysis of him as a propagandist, which is his selective use of essentially like a victim victimhood. <laughs> yeah. It's extremely selection selection. And essentially, I mean the guy can't think properly. His his brain is completely fried by these terrible ideas, and <laughs> um, and you know, like the the in his eyes, the Uma, and uh, well, what he perceives as the Uma, or what he designates the Uma, and uh, and his particular interpretation of his uh, religions, holy texts, and history, uh. Uh, irrefutable and above above uh, moral scrutiny. Yeah, exactly. Everything that anybody else does can can be analyzed under like the victimhood. <laughs> yeah. Fuck me for fucking like throwing the victim card at fucking some fucking cave dwelling poor motherfucker who's just like fighting like <laughs> US airplanes well, and shit. But like seriously, he does. <laughs> no, I would say he he chose to live. He was from a very wealthy family. Like he chose that life. Yeah, the the dwelling in a cave and getting shot at was his Entirely choice. Like no one imposed. made him yeah, do yeah. this. Yeah, that's true. That's extremely true. Because Saudi Arabia, they got fucking gold Bentleys and stuff there, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah heaps of cool shit. So yeah, no, I uh, I withdraw that. He's just a he's well, he's just a propagandist, isn't he? So there you go. The thing is, it and yeah, like an effective propagandist, he says things that are true. There's plenty of truth mixed up in what he says. Like the West has really fucked up a lot of things in the Middle East. It's just I would not say. Western meddling is the sole cause of problems in the Middle East, which seems to be his contention. And as soon as you step away from the mentality of an eye for an eye, then it's just like, well, 
is a some sort of ethic that can transcend that and probably in his point of view it'd be like yeah converting to islam yeah exactly making everyone <laughs> and, and, and imposing sharia um the other interesting thing to talk about was uh how much of it so proportionality how much of a threat was al-qaeda and whatever other islamist um radical organizations but al-qaeda against the west and the u.s and was the U.S.'s response proportional? I think the U.S.'s, and by extension, the Western world's response was completely disproportional, and Al-Qaeda was <laughs> never a threat to the West. It's pretty crazy, uh, hey. They got The fucked. idea that... So, uh, particularly if you're... I think particularly if you were in the United States at the time of 9-11, and even more so if you were... In New York, if you know someone who died in the attacks, or if, if you're in Washington, because they flew a plane into the Pentagon as well, then the the events of 9-11, I'm sure, would have been extremely traumatic. But yeah. in terms of was it a civilizational threat, no. Like, not, not. Not at all. Like, the US is wealthier than it was before 9-11, it, like, with the Iraq war and things like that, I think George W. Bush really fucked up uh, American soft power around the world. But, like, it, it, is, it just was not a civilizational threat. And I just can't imagine a world in which Osama bin Laden defeated the United States of America. It's just, it's pure fantasy so like he, technically somewhere in the multiverse that happened yeah just, yeah just the proportion of multiverses in which that happened is vanishingly small <laughs> yeah he says so in among a band of knights published february 14 2003 he says we can conclude that america is a superpower with enormous military strength and vast economic power but that all is built on the foundations of straw. So it is possible to target these foundations and focus on their weakest points, which, even if you strike only one-tenth of them, then the whole edifice will totter and sway and relinquish its unjust leadership of the world. So I would say a lot of American wealth is built on pretty dubious things, like yeah, the, the American like shit dollar coins. is... Is, is yeah is, is an article of faith, but it's an article of One faith of which is backed up by a huge army and nukes, which like that is a physical backing. Yeah, it's a lot of backing. Massively, massively indebted. But proof at the of same work. Time, what about proof of warship? Proof of How's war. That? I think proof of warship is actually take that a Satoshi. reasonable strategy of maintaining a currency. <laughs> Satoshi like it, could actually afford to buy warships though. <laughs> I recently but, saw that a $13 billion US warship was finished, like the construction of it was finished recently. $13 billion dollars is like 1,200 meters long or something. It could carry like X number of fucking planes and all this sort of shit. I was like, that is fucking crazy. Like, just unbelievable. They dropped $13 billion on a fucking warship. And yep. just like this one ship could take out like basically any other fucking country's <laughs> navy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll have to see what happens in the next episode of um, Chat GPT Storytime if Xi Jinping could single handedly take it on. 
<laughs> just swims out to sea. No, I'm like a I'm shark gonna... <laughs> bites a hole in its hull, chews through it. <laughs> I'm going to um guess that. Yeah, I'm going to side with you. It was disproportional. Yeah. So things like so in the case of the United States, the Patriot Act, Australia jumped on the bandwagon. The yeah, government quite happily, and this was a. I'm I'm glad that the Labor Party and the the coalition in Australia could find some bipartisan ground to oppress their own citizens in passing yeah. laws legalizing det- indefinite detention without trial. And keep in mind that this Le- affected- legalizing spying on their own citizens' communications, making telecommunications providers keep records of messages sent between Australians, shit like that. And Australia doesn't have a Bill of Rights, so all of that's absolutely A-OK legally. All of that was fucking bullshit, continues to be bullshit, because it's still legal and still on the books, and no politician in Australia will talk about it because they all love it, because it's just an expansion of their own arbitrary power. Like, that sort of stuff was vastly, was way, way disproportional to the threat of Al-Qaeda or of Islamic extremism. Yeah, it's, uh, it seems as though the expansion of state power, particularly, well, specifically to control and coerce its own people, is something that is always so easily advocated for by our yeah. parliamentarians, but is never regressed. So it's like it's a ratchet. It clicks into place and it just keeps on getting tighter. Yeah, you can always say there is another terrorist threat or it always or exists as virus. a potential. It's like, well, we need to keep these laws on the books the, because what if... The biosecurity state has clamped down. <laughs> We've got a friend, which we will <laughs> not name and which we'll, we cannot <laughs> name, who may or may not run a blog about... Called... <laughs> about the effects of the fiat control system on <laughs> our health. <laughs> and he may or may not be a Bitcoin maximalist. <laughs> Can't say. But suffice to say, yeah, like that was one of the most, probably what did more damage to the West than the actual, the actual terrorism was the state's response to terrorism and the destruction yeah, of exactly. our civil liberties in the West. And in Australia, keep in mind, in Australia... We actually do have constitutional freedom of religion. We don't have constitutional freedom of speech and other things, but we have constitutional freedom of religion. And that means that, like, in the entire premise of, like, uh, using the surveillance capitalism to target a particular, like, like religious minority or something like that is uh, expressly, like, against the Constitution. So the only way you could spin that sort of thing is, like, you can't say it's against Muslims. You can only say it's against, like, okay, Islamic radicalists or something like that. But in effect, it can be used against everybody. Like, it's not... They, they, they didn't tailor, the, like, the laws to only be able to target, like, this sort of person, that sort of person. No, the, the, laws, the laws are intentionally vaguely defined and can be applied to anyone... Who is inconvenient? What is that uh, scope creep? The scope creep or the definitional like expansion of what is terror, what is terrorist activity, what what can be construed as such, or might be a threat. And and remember, like state uh, technology, military technology, 
like they don't just use that for the military they use that for the police force like in in australia we've got these things in in the new south wales called the raptor squad which ostensibly the fucking jurassic park squad yeah <laughs> nice uh, ostensibly they're only supposed to be used against like big fucking busts you know like i don't know like cartels or bikies or whatever they pull that shit out at fucking house parties um and these these are like big fucking dudes built like brick shit houses like armed to the fucking teeth you know SWAT gear and all that sort of garbage and they'll throw that at house parties <laughs> you know it's disgusting it's fucking disgusting the militarization of the police since uh the early 2000s has been one of the worst things that has happened to in in the west yeah and i would say asama I don't think he is responsible for that happening. So before 9-11, he said that he, he supported attacks on the West to get the West out of the Middle East. After 9-11, when he finally claimed responsibility for 9-11, which did take a few years for him to come out and say it, by that stage, it was clear that his initial goal fell through, that 9-11 made the West more involved in the Middle East. So he turned around and started saying, oh, I did it to bleed the West dry in a long war or a series of long wars in the Middle East, as well as make Western governments reveal to the world that their, their talk and supposed veneration of liberty and freedom and things like that is just a total sham. Yeah. I would say that to an extent, governments or any large organizations will always act to increase their own power. It's just yeah. an internal logic of organizations that organizations will have some sort of objective that they were formed to fulfill. Yeah, there's and, a lot of issues around like And they're just it's fairly logical that they will seek to accumulate power to further achieve mm. that goal. Because just the more power they have, the more capable they are of achieving a goal. In which case, like governments I don't think governments are strictly antithetical to freedom i'm I'm far from someone who will argue for no state but no me neither certainly there is you know an amount too much of of interference past which yeah they do just start destroying all of the atrocities like the big scale atrocities of all being committed by nation states or empires in which case i think osama bin laden's saying that and again this is just him not understanding free societies, him saying that the governments of free societies demonstrate that the governments of free societies don't necessarily support freedom and personal Mm. liberty to the same extent that maybe an individual citizen would support it. Therefore, those values are a sham. He doesn't distinguish between an individual citizen and a government. Yeah. As well as that, just the claim that he was playing 4D chess and he all along wanted to, to make Western governments overreact and clamp down on civil liberties at home, I think is a bit of a stretch and a post hoc rationalisation of a fuck up. And then I would also say that I don't think Osama bin Laden inspired governments to to expand their power beyond what I think it should be in terms of I don't think detention without, about that without trial no. and mass surveillance and things like that. I think he gave them an excuse. I think if it weren't for him, something else would have come up. Yeah, for sure. It's a, 
I think people have a few times asked what our actual political views are, and we, we've never said them outright, but I do think the past few minutes have given people... Well, I didn't say expressly what my views were, but I said I had criticisms of things. So I feel like that's a... It's a I haven't said what they are, but I have certainly said what they are not. I'm an anarcho-monarchist. <laughs> Anarcho-crypto-monarchist. Anarcho-monarchist. I want no state except for a divine ruler. And crypto and Bitcoin. And, like and well, like Satoshi Yarvin. Nakamoto is the divine ruler. And anybody who's the mod, who's like the reincarnation of the reincarnation, uh, chain reincarnation yeah. of Satoshi. Max Nakamoto. Kaiser, that fucking crazy son of a bitch, is the reincarnation of Satoshi. <laughs> no, I want the 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 Bitcoin blockchain to exist as the the spirit of Satoshi Nakamoto, and we need to look wonderful. for answers within the blockchain. We need so you know how in Rome could you imagine doing numerology spe- on the in divination, dude? like. <laughs> looking at looking at entrails or how the crows flew over the Palatine Hill, we yeah, need yeah. a group of of people to divine the movements of the Bitcoin blockchain, to interpret in them the messages from our Lord Satoshi, <laughs> and that is how we will rule society. <laughs> I want as much blockchain mysticism as possible. Blockchain mysticism? Do you reckon? Uh there might actually be something on the internet that's got like blockchain mysticism. What do you reckon? I think I reckon blockchain mysticism is fertile ground. <laughs> and if it doesn't exist yet, then we should start it. A spirituality <laughs> so based so on tea, tea leaf reading of the blockchain. It's, it's literally designed to just be complete scramble. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just reading meaning into like the different <laughs> the different like hash outputs and shit. I don't care about signal. I just want noise. I just want the noise in the blockchain. <laughs> like those Rorsak Igblot tests. <laughs> so I had another uh point down here that we can discuss, which is the state of the world now, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. So some of them could be like uh, for example, was the war on terror a distraction from other more important things, such as the rise of China, the CCP in particular? Yeah, I think probably. So, so there, there, are, there are a few things. So American and all Western countries need a source of hydrocarbon power or of power, but at the moment, you know, the backbone of all of our energy grids yeah. is hydrocarbon. Yeah. And like there, there needs to be a minimum level of stability in the Middle East for America to get because good access. The Middle East has really high quality them. oil. Like even though other countries have like different sources, like fracking was a big thing for the US over the last fifteen years. Still, just like the quality of the oil out of Saudi Arabia is insane. Yeah, and people like Peter Zihan say that America is pulling back from the Middle East in part because of the the fracking industry means that. The United States has much more of a yeah, domestic I would argue production that, capacity like, for hydrocarbons. Their breakthroughs have actually been throttled by the environmentalist movement in the US by uh, shutting down research and deployment of fracking. They could have actually scaled it up even faster. Which, you know, like yeah. obviously people who are environmentalists was, might say that, that was the right thing, but one of the effects is that like uh, domestic supply of oil <clears throat> means that they need to get it from elsewhere. 
Yeah, environmentalists will also tend to start screaming for the government to do something as soon as electricity bills get too high. Yeah, well, I they're bringing in, um, they're bringing in uh, the the Labor government is bringing in price controls, or at least debating price controls for the energy market here, which is Gee, you that's know, not going to blow up all in these their faces. Fucking morons learn, hey. You know, all they've got that's to read just, is like, it's like one we've we've book. tried this before. It's a, this this is not a new idea, and it just keeps not it's working. It's been tried for quite a while, and it never works. <laughs> and we know why it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, these fucking All it morons. does is, so, I mean, I'm going to use a technical term here. It fucks the shit out of price signals, and things collapse eventually. But I feel like we're giving away too much of our potential political opinion. <laughs> well, I've already Again, stated I didn't very, say... very explicitly that I'm an anarcho-monarchist. So I don't know how much more clear I can be. Again, that. I'm going to emphasize that I didn't say what my political opinion was. I just said... Anarcho-monarchy as well. It was not um, price controls for the energy market. Dumb idea. But also... You know, who who cares? Let's just let's just accelerate it into the ground, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Ma accelerationism. What about <clears throat> um <clears throat> well with the distraction from uh China and other stuff, uh like what do you is there hmm. Is this going to be too vague a question or is it, can I actually ask anyway? Why was the war on terror so, such an enormous issue relative to the size of like the actual threat versus like the China thing was not only ignored, but like we, like the West actively, you know, you know, maybe, maybe on understandable grounds, like trade relations in the hope that like China was opening up, but it is just like, gone in such the opposite direction in the last like five to ten years um that you would think that the rise of china would be perceived as uh an enormous geopolitical threat but in fact it was like these two issues were precisely out of tilt between uh like the actual size of the threat versus like the amount of attention and scrutiny it received yeah yeah, that's such an understatement yeah it's just insane absolutely (laughs) I do think there was so this is this is massively multifactorial, and I guess I'll just be thinking out loud. Don't worry, there was quite a bit of we're totally unqualified to be talking about this stuff, Jack. No, no, I'm just bullshitting. <laughs> I'm the world's best geostrategic analyst, as everybody knows. That's why people listen to this podcast to hear me talk about this sort of stuff. I know everything. Sorry, I'm there's nothing. Up my nose there's nothing I don't know. I'm not putting anything else up my nose. Anything, anything bad up my nose. I'm putting Vicks to clear my nose because I got a blocked nose. Levi's <laughs> I'm not just snorting drugs. Line of speed. Just <laughs> sorry. On a on a Sunday Hoovering night. Hoovering it up is schnoz. Schnozzing. So just a mixture can of ketamine and this cocaine. Question really, so I can really excited. Stay up until stand up in the morning. I can stay awake until nine thirty a.m. tomorrow morning to go to stand up. <laughs> no. Um. In part. There was, I think, with the the end of the Cold War, there was this period of triumphalism that, yep, the West has come up with the the final political system. So Francis Fukuyama's The End of History is frequently mischaracterized as just a triumphalist tract talking about how how the West has worked out everything and how there is not going to be a political... There won't be any more iterations of political thought 
now that liberal democracy has prevailed over the Soviet Union. That's silly. But who is this person? That that caricature was fairly widespread in the West. So I think there there was a degree of that in terms of not seeing a rising China as a threat. So seeing that, okay, as the Chinese middle class grows, as it grows wealthier, then naturally they will become liberal Democrats because that is the direction of history. And, you know, this, this idea of a directional history, I think, is pretty frivolous. As well as that, I wonder whether it was just a feeling of not having an enemy. So the Soviet Union fell. You had the 90s where it was great, where America just got to do whatever the fuck it wanted. And then suddenly in 2001, there was a feeling of vulnerability again because there, there were these, this series of attacks within the United States, very, very high profile, very public, where thousands of people died. And it was, it was suddenly the return of, of vulnerability. And I wonder whether people overreacted because of that. Yeah, I, I, I think that would be a big part of it. I, I also think the fact that it was, there, was successful, there were successful attacks on US soil was a big part of it as well. Yeah. And they weren't, there's no, in terms of the optics, there's no like warning with an attack like 9-11, you know, if you're going to go to war, say with Japan, like, you know, it's the military, there's going to be a naval front, you know, and the citizens themselves are not like at the front, front line. Whereas like in terms of optics and propaganda, the 2001 attacks, we were just so successful because it like just brought it straight into civilian life on US soil. Yeah. So I think from a kind of psychological propaganda point of view is like a masterpiece. Yeah. And then almost, or at least to my mind, one of the worst outcomes of that has eventuated in that now, so the threat of Al-Qaeda has receded, the threat of ISIS lone wolf attacks it seems like, to have receded. It's like every five years they need a new Muslim organization that is uh, some sort of threat to Western civilization. Yeah, but also Western populations have just grown accustomed to a a a world war a war on terror world where when we go to the airport now, we just assume that we're going to be fucking irradiated in in useless security screening mechanisms. We assume that we'll be treated like cattle who are who all have the 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 potential to be carrying a bomb and a Kalashnikov and are just waiting to be carrying out a mass casualty attack. We expect that all our communications are going to be monitored yeah. and you're going to be under suspicion if you dare use something like Signal or, you know, before Tor was compromised, if you were using a VPN and Tor. You just assume that police have powers to arbitrarily detain you without charge or without telling you why. And in Australia, if you talk about your, your arbitrary detention, then you can go to prison. We've just grown used to this and accept that this is the way the world works which is one of the worse outcomes i think yeah, of the war on terror that could have happened burned authoritarianism in the west which is really the, the most damaging thing that these um the war on terror these attacks helped precipitate was and it's it's bipartisan 
this is this is a criticism what jack and i are saying i guess at the moment is can be can be uh framed against essentially all major parties yeah absolutely and they all they are all uh, not merely complicit like they've actively been like making the policies and uh legislation to uh, to basically expand police police power state power uh yeah you know um domestic homeland security power um yeah and the rise of that authoritarian mechanism machine has has been oh it's been terrible for the for the west i like i am so acutely aware of how authoritarian australia well i feel you know in my assessment uh how authoritarian australia australia is and i I don't like it that's part of the reason why i need to go and spend some time away from australia in the case of Australia, it's this strange, suspended, minimally invasive authoritarianism because moment to moment, it's not, it, it's, it's not like you're living in North Korea or something like that. Like, you can no. openly criticise the Australian government, which is exactly yeah. what we're doing right now. It's not yeah. that. It's more the, the government is basically has, has given itself a loaded gun and you are relying on the goodwill of people in Canberra which is a fucking stupid course of action. They're re- not renowned to use it. for their integrity. So basically, like they they have the ability to just detain people without giving a reason why. They they have the ability to monitor your communications. You're just hoping that because it because of convention that Australia hasn't conventionally been authoritarian in this way that they don't do it. But it's but fundamentally that potential the that disturbs have become me. more authoritarian, and now it's just a matter of hoping that the people in in seats of power within those institutions don't become malicious with that power, or don't become more yeah, malicious precisely. with that power. Yeah, it's an incredibly dangerous and precarious position to be in. I don't think most Australians like give two thoughts to it. <laughs> no, probably not. And because we don't have a Bill of Rights, it's even more. Yeah. D- that that danger is even greater. So yeah. I I wouldn't say Australia is authoritarian at the moment. Or but the, the the concept of authoritarianism is slippery, and I think by certain definitions you can say it is. I just think those definitions are probably a bit permissive. But it is yeah. it has the the legal possibility of becoming quite authoritarian. And again, within the legal framework that already exists in Australia, it could become yeah. quite authoritarian. And that's, I think, one of the most lasting pieces of damage from the war on terror. It's still better than, obviously, like other other countries in this regard. But the 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 way that I think about it is that there's the category, and then there's the spectrum, or the subcategories, and there are aspects of Australia that just categorically are authoritarian, but like in with regards to like the spectrum of or the multiplicity of forms that authoritarianism can take, it is one of the lesser forms. A good example is um, my current understanding of uh, the Australian education system is that it is illegal not to send your child to school or if you're delivering homeschooling, um, illegal not to conform to the Australian curriculum standards, Um, which... A lot of people, I think, like in my social context, would be like, that's a good thing, isn't it? Um, but what they don't realize is that essentially that's saying that an authority 
the Australian Curriculum Board can set what is the knowledge and the standard of knowledge in our entire like primary and secondary education system that must be conformed to by all like hundreds of thousands of children. And if you don't, you can have criminal charges and like be in like up for say like in front of child protective services and stuff. And that is not as bad as like, say the indoctrination of uh, North Koreans, obviously these are different parts of the spectrum. And I know that it's a lot better here in Australia, but in terms of categorically, well, if the government is saying you must teach your kids a certain prescribed curriculum and not doing so will get you in legal trouble, that is just categorically authoritarian. And whether or not it gets worse or better is a matter of like, do people even appreciate that that's authoritarian and that in principle is not, well, in my, in my perspective, like I don't find it acceptable. Yeah, that that's interesting. Else, that, if, if that's defined as authoritarianism, can... then not all forms, or at least not all degrees of authoritarianism, I disagree with. I do yeah. think I think there are actually. It's a good thing to have minimum educational standards. My concern then would be more: how do you define those educational standards? My concern is less that there is an authority saying that you have to adhere to certain standards. Yeah, oh, I guess we disagree on that then. I think if somebody yeah. does want to send the kids to school, then they don't have to. I mean, I don't know if that's a good idea, <laughs> but whether or not they are mandated to, I think is a, a violation of their uh, their rights as people and as parents. Yeah, I guess that's a point of disagreement, but also I was about to say not relevant to Osama Bin Laden and then realised that at least half of this podcast has been completely <laughs> off topic. <laughs> I don't think this is even unusually off topic for us by our standards. Maybe I'm talking too much about my own politics. I've got to shut the fuck up. <laughs> Talk more about OBL. Are there any other interesting points? Maybe you should cut that entire part out and just like remove my No, keep it in. <laughs> I think the, like uh, there, there's no end to sort of interesting stuff to talk about with respect to Osama bin Laden. Like I've got fifteen and a half thousand words of quotes here. It's just I think we've we've covered most of the interesting parts. And yes, we could offer additional detail on his religiosity or his his view of Israel and things like that. But I think in the interests of brevity, which is one of our strengths, we're very good at offering terse brief to-the-point commentaries on a variety of authors and, and systems of thought. In the interests of brevity, it probably actually wouldn't add much more. I uh, don't see any other worthwhile. The only other, <clears throat> the only other question we have is, uh, what would the world be like if the West had not intervened in the Middle East in the, you know, different various, but particularly since the 80s? I don't know if, the, is that worth answering? I don't know. That's that's crystal ball gazing. That's probably even beyond my prodigious yeah. abilities at <laughs> at imagining <laughs> alternate histories. Um, well, are there any other interesting talking points? How do I sign up to Al Qaeda two? <laughs> Al Qaeda two point zero. All right. Well, then, any any concluding thoughts about OBL? Uh, look, I'm happy actually that I read something that he 
The things that he wrote and transcripts of things that he said, because for a figure who has featured so prominently in our public discourse, there is actually very little discussion of his own words. You only ever really hear about people talking about him. So it is, Yeah, I think it is useful to go to a primary source. I would recommend that people read at least one of his writings. Probably his, um, it's called like To the People of America or something like that. That's probably the most useful one because it sums up his... It sums up his beliefs, his demands of the West, and also offers a fairly good view of his argumentative techniques and his approach to persuasion. I wouldn't bother reading this whole book because it's very repetitive. No, I, I think like getting it, maybe just uh, pick out the interesting sounding ones. Oh, at the beginning of each uh, essay or whatever, um, there's a short introduction giving context so if you were to buy this book which i would also recommend buying it is yeah, interesting. I'd, yeah I'd recommend the book actually it's a good book yeah and it's not so i got the i got the paperback it's really nice it's a nice book um <clears throat> uh you know flick through it pick out some interesting ones to read it is really interesting to read his perspective and um also don't take obviously like as this might be one of the first oh no we we recommended mike Ma, but it's not very often that we actually recommend reading the books and uh <laughs> and in this particular case if you were like don't take our word for everything that we just said you can read for it yourself like the guy's a complete religious like nutcase and can't think outside he's <laughs> like tiny skating. little his tiny little world and i don't think any of the stuff that we said about him this evening is like even remotely unfair so yeah <laughs> Uh, I mean, oh, no. Earlier, I said I wanted him to fuck me in the mouth. I think that's probably unfair. That's not not unfair. Sounds like a really good time. <laughs> <laughs> I want him to sodomize the shit out of me. <laughs> well, Come him, on, Osama. I'm just shove his fist up my ass. Just cram <laughs> it in there without lube. Ah, uh, Osama, Osama. What a Daddy. what an what an impressive. Mark, this uh, this person has left on history for, you know, really having, in a weird way, having achieved nothing, <laughs> having achieved nothing except for, like, provoking an unbelievably powerful enemy. But I would say one thing that he did give me was yeah. when he was killed, I was I was living with quite a few Americans. And they threw a huge party to celebrate Osama, Osama getting killed. And I remember like, it, was a, it was a really fun party. And even then, 18-year-old Jack was sort of disturbed at <laughs> just the, Throwing the a party. mirth at some guy whom none of us had ever met getting shot dead in his home in Pakistan. Yeah, so I mean, uh, he gave me a very strange experience while I, I was living overseas. I'll, um, to I'll give him that as, as praise. <laughs> Thanks, Osama, for a very strange <laughs> night celebrating your death with a, with a group of Americans. I think that's got to be a line somewhere. Like, maybe I can understand partying because you killed, say, Hitler <laughs> or, or Stalin or something like that. Um, but you know what, like the, the other year when Thatcher died, there were like 
uh, people, even in Melbourne, who are like partying. There were people who like threw Thatcher celebration death parties, and uh, I found it pretty found, fucking weird when Melbourne, like Champagne Socialist at the University of Melbourne, were celebrating Thatcher's death. It's like, mate, you're 19. Like, did this have any impact on you? You don't even live in the right country. I found it. Yeah. I. Uh, anyway. Yeah, uh, I found it quite distasteful. And I uh, probably wouldn't celebrate Osama's death either. But then again, I'm uh, non-American, so. But I would have actually thought that, you know, I don't, I, w- I don't think any, uh, I would imagine that celebrating people's death is not allowed in Islam. But I would actually have thought that Muslims would have had more reason to celebrate his death than Americans. Well, as we know, as um, <laughs> the indisputable scholar Osama bin Laden has said, or at least intimated, if you disagree with him, you're not a Muslim. <laughs> the oldest trick in the book, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Identify yourself with the faith. <laughs> good on him. Fucking uh, good on him. Honest so, uh, next episode. I think the next episode will be one with Ed, or the next one to be released. We just watched Wolf Warrior 2, the Chinese propaganda action movie, and uh, i got to say, it was pretty good. So. Very entertaining movie. Best movie Especially ever. the racial dimension of it. They, um, they haven't quite ironed out all of the kinks in terms of coming out with a truly global propaganda phenomenon. There's a, there is a lot of un-Chinese <laughs> racial supremacy at work there, which mm. I found very funny, but I don't know if it will go down well, particularly in Africa. No, I won't say more about it they until it's up, time to record the episode. <laughs> All right. You can watch it for free on YouTube, though, which I did. I mean, I paid for it. You, you fucking paid for it. Oh, my God, Jack. <laughs> Please, Xi Jinping, don't drone strike my house because I, I illegally watched Wolf Warrior 2 with English dubs on YouTube in, like, 360p blurry Nokia quality. The English subs are the best. So, so bad. Oh, they're so good. (laughs) Anyway, thanks for listening.